Hello and welcome to Revenge of the Drive-In, the podcast where we watch, review, and discuss two movies randomly selected from a list of over 2,000. This week, however, we're approaching the end of our season, and these movies have not been randomly selected. They do come from the same list, but these are films voted for by our patrons at Patreon. And the films are The Lost World Jurassic Park from director Steven Spielberg, and Godzilla from 1998, yes, that one, from director <laughs> Rowan Emmerich. I am your host, Patrick, and I am joined here by... Oh, the always laughing Jim. Hello, Patrick. How are you, buddy? Hey, I'm good. Both of these movies meant a lot to me as a child. I, I watched the hell out of both of these, and they they don't mean that much to me anymore. <laughs> Well, The Lost World never really meant much to me as a kid. I loved the first Jurassic Park, and then the third one... Sucks. Well, actually, I liked the third one, because when I was a no! kid... No! Well, the third okay. one's better than this one. I disagree, but... Oh my goodness, well, this yeah. was always my least favorite one, but the Godzilla... That was the Godzilla that I grew up with. Sure. I watched the shit out of that movie. I think Godzilla on VHS, it came in like, you know the VHS cover, and it had, like, like a holographic Godzilla yes. eye on it, right? <laughs> yeah, I remember that. And I don't know if that's the one I had, but I, it probably is because I remember that. <laughs> yeah, it was great. I watched both these films on my DVDs, and they were probably among the first DVDs I owned because they're, they're definitely, like, first-generation DVD, hmm. and I submit as evidence the, the back of the Godzilla DVD case where it proudly proclaims animated menus. It's like, yeah, it's, after DVDs had been out for a while, you def- you're definitely not proudly proclaiming that. That's that's almost like expected. So, well, Jim, I turn it over to you to get us started with The Lost World. The Lost World, Jurassic Park, as you mentioned, directed by Mr. Stevie Spiels, Steven Spielberg, written by, I, I don't know how to pronounce his name, David Cope? I think it's Cap. Who I want to say, first of all, he's from my hometown. I've never met him. In fact, there in my hometown there is a company, Cap Realty. I assume that's his family. I, mm. I don't believe he has anything to do with it. But I guess I, I'll say I've been a fan of his because he wrote the screenplay for the original Jurassic Park. Yeah. Along with the original author of the novel, Michael, Michael Crichton. Crichton. I, I don't know. I know he did a lot of like big blockbuster movies for a period of time. He did uh, the first Spider-Man movie. Oh. You know, he's done some smaller stuff, but most of the movies he's written have been these kind of, like, big action movies. And I think for a while, anyways, he was Spielberg's go-to for those kinds of movies. Gotcha, okay. Um, Spielberg doesn't really make these kinds of movies anymore, and Spielberg's go-to screenwriter now is uh, Tony Kushner. Did Spielberg direct the new Jurassic Park movies? No, Spielberg has had little to nothing to do with the series since this movie. I think he's an executive producer on three. I don't even remember if he it gets a credit in any of the Jurassic World movies. He might, but if so, it's, it's like executive producer. I'm sure he gets royalties at any rate, but I don't know if he has any direct involvement. You know, I think he secretly, and maybe even not so secretly, hates Jurassic Park. Well, it explains this movie. Well, it does. I, I watched like well, this documentary okay. on YouTube a while ago. And by watched, I mean I may or may not, may or may not have been <laughs> using the bathroom and then cooking food, and I was listening to it. Oh, please wash your hands. He was filming the first Jurassic Park at the same time that he was filming Schindler's List. Well, 
Not, I mean, they came out the same year. I don't think he was literally traveling from one set to the other, was he? He kind of was. So he so he wrapped oh. up on Jurassic Park, and originally they had gotten, I forget the fellow's name, but he was, you know, this leader in Claymation to do all the dinosaur uh, stuff. Uh, Tippett, Phil, Phil Tippett, yeah. I believe. Another guy came up and was like, look, I think we can use CG and like real effects to achieve a better, yeah. more realistic dinosaur. So Spielberg's like, yeah, sure, go for it. You start doing that, I have to fly to Europe. To film Schindler's List. So while he's working on Schindler's List, he keeps on getting calls about like issues with the dinosaurs or issues with Jurassic Park or like reshoots for Jurassic Park and stuff like that. And he said it was like the most stressful year of his life fixing up Jurassic Park as he's filming Schindler's List because he's so intent on making a compelling story with Schindler's List and making like an actual art piece. It was it was clear that Schindler's List was a true passion project, not that he didn't give it his all with Jurassic Park but Shino's list if I'm not mistaken he like refused to be paid for it and everything like he really well thought, originally he refused like, to I just wanted it. to tell this story yeah at at one point he didn't want to direct it and I think someone else was going to direct it and I and they're like uh no I can't direct this you need a Jew to direct this story I, I can't do this yeah exactly so they went back to Spielberg it might have been like the late 80s I'm pretty sure it was the mid to late 80s he was originally approached to direct Schindler's List and he said no like I, I haven't done what I want to do yet I haven't grown up enough to to film this movie and yeah, and then he was working on Jurassic Park, and I think he really wanted to make Jurassic Park, but I think the only way that the, um, what's what I'm looking for, production company, would let him do Jurassic Park is if he filmed Schindler's List directly afterwards. I had thought it was the other way around, that they only let him do Schindler's List if they, or if he made this movie that was like a guaranteed blockbuster. Yeah, is that not what I said? No, yeah, you said... Um, oh, then yes, I say what you say. Yeah. Yeah, Jurassic Park was the contractual obligation yes. in order to make a film that, for all anyone knew, might have lost a ton of money. I don't believe it did because Shinoda's List was like an Oscar winner, and I think a lot of people saw it when it came out. Jerry Seinfeld famously making out <laughs> in the back of the movie theater, spotted yeah. by Newman. Yeah. I want to say a few things about Spielberg and about... The first Jurassic Park movie, and, and this one, obviously. This is unusual for us, first of all, that we are doing a sequel without doing the original. Ordinarily, if we did the random number generator and we landed on The Lost World, we would be doing the first Jurassic Park. But since this was the will of the people, <laughs> we'll just go have to go ahead with it. But first of all, Jim, you and I, we met when we were in undergrad, so we mm -hmm. were adults when we met so i don't really have a sense of what life was like growing up for you or anything like that but i will say for me i grew up with steven spielberg movies like more than anything else and it was jurassic park it was et it was indiana jaws jones. indiana jones yeah i would say like if if i were to name like the five most important movies to me as a kid for getting me into movies or just you know movies that i watched over and over again i would say it's jurassic park back to the future which spielberg produced and direct raiders of the lost ark jaws did i say jaws not yet but you just did <laughs> and then i don't know if i had a fifth one maybe et like they're like all spielberg spielberg related eh, independence day might be in there too but yeah like at the same time, though, so Spielberg, he was a blockbuster director. He arguably invented the blockbuster. A lot of people say Jaws is the first summer blockbuster, and then 
does Close Encounters, he does Raiders Lost Ark, he does E.T. all after that. Mm -hmm. I think his career changed, and I don't want to say it changed for the better or for worse. I think there's an argument to be made either way, but I think his career changed in 1993 when he made Schindler's List and Jurassic Park. I think the post-Schindler's List blockbuster Spielberg movies feel very different than the pre-Schindler's List blockbuster movies. You know, he Spielberg still makes good movies. His West Side Story remake was awesome. Lincoln was great. But, like, his wannabe, like, action sci-fi big blockbuster movies, like, War of the Worlds, like, eh, it's okay. The Lost World, eh, it's okay. Mm-hmm. I'm not really a big Minority Report fan. A lot of people You're are. not a really big Minority fan? Is that what you just said? <laughs> earlier but the earlier movies it's like universal approval like who doesn't love jaws yeah so something changed and you know i think he matured as a man probably matured in his ambitions as a filmmaker but i do think it's kind of you know it i mean he made saving private ryan but i do think like i i kind of miss the old spielberg blockbuster like, I, I don't give a crap about Ready Player One. No, and I think there was something about Spielberg that, or like, Spielberg was synonymous with movie magic. Yeah. And for some reason, after Schindler's List, and even like after Saving Private Ryan, you don't really get that anymore from Spielberg, I feel. Yeah, and there's and there's a few things. I said, like, I suspect his ambitions as a filmmaker changed, obviously with Schindler's List and later Amistad and Saving Private Ryan. He found his voice in like dramatic films more so than he had before. Yeah. But also, I mean, just think of the film industry and how it had changed, how action movies, how special effects had changed since Jurassic Park. It's a digital world. It's completely different than the world that existed when he made Jaws. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if there's like an adjustment, you know, uh, he couldn't quite adjust as easily as someone like a James Cameron. It's funny that you say that something changed for him after Schindler's List, because I think before The Lost World, he had taken a year off of directing, I think. And it was just to kind of recoup from that Schindler's List and first Jurassic Park period of his life that he was going through. I mean, I could be wrong, but I think this is the first movie he made after that period. It might be. I mean, again, like Jurassic Park and Schindler's List, Amistad comes out the same year as The Lost World. I'm not really sure which he Mm. made first, which even came out first, but they're both 97. But there was something else I was going to say about Spielberg. This actually, well, this is going to be a little bit about Spielberg, but Jim, I'm wondering how much you know of Michael Crichton. I've heard him referred to as one of the greatest authors or one of the greatest American authors in the last... And I was going to say, I heard that He's on... He's one of the most successful. He's not one of the greatest. <laughs> well, I was going to but... say, I heard that on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So. Oh, okay, sure. That <laughs> makes a lot of sense then. Charlie, who can't read, might have said that. <laughs> I have kind of mixed feelings on Michael Crichton because he got me into like reading books for adults. I think when I was in fourth grade, I started reading... Those are like the first adult books that I read. It was like Jurassic Park and Sphere. and. Well, I was going to say Sphere, yeah. He writes the book Jurassic Park. It comes out in 1990. If I'm not mistaken, Universal or Spielberg or whoever buys the rights to film it before the book even comes out. Yeah, I I think Michael Crichton said, if you're going to make a movie on it, I want Spielberg to direct it. But the weird thing is, so the, the 
book and the film differ as any adaptation Mm. would pretty much. One of the key differences is that Ian Malcolm, the Jeff Goldblum character in the movie, dies in the first in in the book. He dies at the end of the book. It, it's he has the, he suffers the same injury that he does in the movie where he gets like stepped on by a T-Rex. And I think he just dies from the infection because they can't really get him the medical help that oh. he needs whereas in in the movie he's just kind of like lying around. Well, you know who else dies in the book? John Hammond. John Hammond dies as well. Yes. Uh, I was going to talk about that because the the John Hammond character in the book and the movie is one of the bigger differences. Also, so I don't think Michael Crichton really had an intention of writing a sequel to Jurassic Park. He certainly didn't have the intention of writing one with Ian Malcolm, considering he's fucking dead. <laughs> but I think it was like maybe like kind of the reverse thing of what happened earlier, where they're like, we want to make a sequel, but we need a Michael Crichton book. And then I think it might have been another thing where he's like, I'll write it, but you need Spielberg again. Because this entire thing feels like contractual obligation for Steven Spielberg. Because this is not to his level of, you know, of it's he's he's better than The Lost World. But also, so the book comes out in, I think, 95. Yes, yeah. And and it opens with, um, there's like something, right away they, they explain that, I mean, I haven't read this book in so long, but right away they explain that like Ian Malcolm actually didn't die. That was just like a bad translation in a Costa Rican newspaper. Like they had accent or they had like said something about him dying, but he didn't really. He was like <laughs> okay. in the hospital. And it's like, that's like kind of a funny way to brush it off, but it's not like, I mean, we read him die. We read him dying. We didn't read a newspaper article saying that he died. Like yeah, it's, yeah. But yeah, anyways, so the novel comes out, and then the movie comes out after that, and has nothing to do with the novel. So it was really like they just needed there to be a book, and then we're, it's, it's almost like they had the script written before the book. They did. But they, they couldn't did. make it until the book came out, and there's like no similarities between the two. Well, so what had happened was, so Michael Crichton finishes the book in like 95, and it was either a month or two later, Spielberg and what's his name? Uh, uh, not, not David Kep. Yeah, Kep announced that they're going to be filming the sequel to Jurassic Park in 96. Okay. But by that point, they had already been writing a script and working on like pre-production stuff for almost a year. Okay. So that's why this movie is drastically different than the book. And also Spielberg himself said something like... Um, I read it, and it really lacks in the middle. There's no story in the middle. It, and it might that might be true. I haven't read it in forever. I remember actually liking the book quite a bit, but I remember there being actually, believe it or not, more similarities to the film Jurassic Park 3, one of the worst films ever made, because there's <laughs> that big scene... <laughs> Where they're wandering around like the abandoned laboratory and they like find the raptors and stuff. I remember that being in the book. I think also in the book for the Lost World was pterodactyls or pterodons, which aren't sure. really in the movie. Yeah, they're in but Jurassic. They're in the they show one. up in Jurassic Park three. Yeah, yeah. and I, I don't remember if that scene is at all similar, but they do show up in like the last shot of this movie. They do, yeah, which is funny because which you is, don't see it's them like, at all throughout the right. whole movie. And that's and that's a comical shot too because there's these T Rexes like. Ooh, mother and son like nuzzling yeah and they're like within striking distance of stegosauruses who are just like walking by and sure there's protection in in herds okay there's, well, actually, there's strength in numbers <laughs> but they don't even like 
look concerned. They're just like walking. Like, wouldn't they keep their distance at least a little bit, or at least like as they're walking by, have one or two stegosauruses on guard? Like, it's well, just listen, this I've looks got, so I've funny. I've got something to, me. to tell you here. So, there's like an underlying theme that isn't really expressed that well in the film, and it's nature versus nurture. Okay. Okay. I agree with the part where it's not very well communicated in the film because I don't know how much of anything really is, but Oh yeah, there's 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 nothing other than Ludlow's a fucking bitch ass bitch and Tembo's a cool motherfucking dude oh, who just God, wants to shoot yes, a raptor. Yes, or a, a, a T Rex. Yeah, you're right. So one of the paleontologists that they had working on the movie, I'm gonna actually read what I've taken out of okay. here. Okay. Also retained from the novel was the idea of parenting and nurturing behavior among dinosaurs, as well as a baby T-Rex and a child who stows away in the trailer, which is Kelly, Jeff Goldblum's daughter. Jeff Goldblum's black daughter, yes. Now, the character of Robert Burke, who was the paleontologist from InGen with, like, the cowboy hat, he's based on the paleontologist Robert Baker, or Backer, who believes that T-Rex was a predator. Who Rival- is mentioned in the first Jurassic Park, by the way. They the, the little boy is like, so I've been reading this book by Backer. And he's like, when he's talking to Samuel, oh. and Samuel's just ignoring him. So this guy, he believed that T-Rex was a predator and that's it, right? T-Rex is always out to kill. But the paleontologist who was working on the film as the film's technical advisor, and I think he was the film's technical advisor for the first one as well, it was a fella named Jack Horner. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought the name was Horner. Yeah, the guy was involved in the first movie, for sure. Yeah, so he thought that the T-Rex and dinosaurs in general were more protective and they weren't inherently aggressive. So Horner requested that the character of Burke be eaten by the T-Rex under the waterfall. And all the- <laughs> so, and, and they were like, and they were like this is yeah, just dude, the weirdest we can, paleontology we that in. feud. Yeah, I mean, it's a fun scene. <laughs> Yeah, so like, so Backer himself, he enjoyed the scene. He was like, that's pretty funny. Yeah. But he was also, like, he used that in the movie. He was like, also, I'm fucking vindicated, dude. The T-Rex is a predator. You just proved my point. Well, in the, it's, not, yeah. it's not protecting anything. It's just eating me in the movie. In that particular scene, it really isn't. Yeah. But yes, it's actually similar a little bit to uh, Roland Emmerich does a, a similarly passive-aggressive thing in Godzilla with uh, Siskel and Ebert Mayer. I was going to say, yes, yeah. that's exactly it. I was going to say, was that supposed to be Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel? I'm, I guess it, it is. It is, because the mayor the mayor is Ebert, and he kind of looks like Roger Ebert. Yeah. The And his assistant is Gene, who I don't think really looks like Gene Siskel, but he well, has Well, he's got the bolt, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then he does that. And the reason they did that, he did that is because... Siskel and Ebert had hated Independence Day. Oh, yeah, they shit all over it. And then Emmerich's like, oh, I'm going to show them. <laughs> and then and then when they saw the movie, they commented and they're like, yeah, this is kind of funny, but he didn't do it right. Like, if you're going <laughs> to... If you're going to, like, make fun of us and be passive-aggressive in, in, a, in a monster movie, you need to fucking kill us. Like, Yeah, yeah, have us get eaten or stepped exactly, on. Exactly, yeah, yeah, stepped on something. Looking back on the first one now, I haven't seen the first one in probably close to a decade, but it was one of my favorite movies ever growing up. Mm-hmm. That movie seems to flow a lot better than this movie, which has almost like clear divisions. Well, the last act is like a completely different movie, obviously. Well, yeah, well, I have broken this movie down into five different parts. So we're going to start with the prologue. Which is which is a scene from the first book, by the way. Yes, it is, the, yeah. Um, Compsognathus on the beach. So there's a, a wealthy British family on, on, a, on a beach, on an island, uh, which is, if you're Jeff Goldblum, you'll pronounce it Isla Sorna. If you're not Jeff Gold, Goldblum, you'll probably say Isla Sorna. 
uh, 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 life will, uh, find a way. Yeah, Isla Sorna, it's this island, it's a sibling island to Isla Nublar, I think that's the name of it, and that was the island from the first movie. Right. So this wealthy British family is just, like, hanging out on the beach, they've got servants pouring them champagne, bringing them food, and there's a little girl, she wanders off, off the beach, and she gets attacked by a group of those tiny dinosaurs, Pachylosaurus, I believe, that's them, right? No. Oh. No, that, that is not a dinosaur. You're thinking of Pachycephalosaurus, which is the dinosaur that Roland Tembo identifies as Friar Tuck in maybe my favorite scene of the movie. But no, these are, in the movies, they call them Compsognathus. Oh, that's it. In the book, it's Procompsognathus. I don't know if those are two different species or if it's just like a way to shorten the name. I, I don't really know. But these are the dinosaurs that kill John Hammond in the first book, actually, towards the end. Yeah, listen, if it's not a Triceratops or Stegosaurus, I don't care. All right. Those are my well, two favorite dinosaurs. I was obsessed with dinosaurs as a kid, so if you need help with names, you, you can always ask me. I still retain a lot of this information. Yeah, what's the name of the duck-billed dinosaur? It, it doesn't have a duck bill, but you know what I'm talking about. It's the one with the... The, the one with, that he identifies... The pompadour, He Elvis. says is a pompadour. Yeah, that's actually <laughs> my favorite dinosaur. Believe it or not, that's yeah. Parasaurolophus. Okay, okay. Now, I like the armored one. Ankylosaurus. That's it. I don't think he shows up until Jurassic Park 3, right? Is he even in that one? I mean, I think he Yeah, was... it, it just like in the brief slap together uh, scene where they're just going down the river and they see a few dinosaurs. And uh, it's, it's supposed to be that like, oh, this is the scene of wonder that the first Jurassic Park movie had when they see the Brachiosaurus and the second movie had when they're in when they see the stegosaurus but at that point (laughs) but at that point half the half the characters have been killed by dinosaurs and it's like why are we doing this scene now (laughs) this should be like the first scene (laughs) it's Jurassic park three fucking sucks i don't care what you say (laughs) (laughs) well this movie in this period that i've labeled as the prologue section has a great transition from the little girls or from the mother screaming on the beach when she sees her little girl to jeff goldblum in this new york subway I'm going to comment on this because, yes, because Jeff Goldblum is yawning. And I always remember that transition as a kid. And in particular, he's got like a travel advertisement behind him. Yeah. So it like looks like <laughs> yeah, he's looks like on he's a on tropical island. Yeah. But so I watched this movie, I think, Monday this week on, on DVD. And then a few days later, I noticed that it was on demand on my television. I was like, oh, I'll just throw it on again because I'll be talking about it soon. That version included a few deleted scenes. Oh, I couldn't believe this, but they filmed two different scream to yawn transitions. One of them makes it into the movie. The other one is just a deleted scene. But so in the deleted scene, it goes from Compsognathus attacking the kid to InGen boardroom. And there's like some guy in a suit yawning. And that's when we meet Bob Balaban and he's doing his thing. Oh, Um, I, I literally couldn't believe that. Oh my God, they did that transition twice. And then that scene wraps up and then they just go to, and then there's, no one screams in that scene, in the deleted scene. So they just transition to Jeff Goldblum and he's just yawning for no reason. It's just no really weird. Way. It's funny that they did it twice. That's I do bizarre. like the transition, but it did not work in the version that has a deleted scene and then goes to Jeff Goldblum yawning. But Jeff Goldblum, he's in uh, he's in New York. He's still playing the same character, Ian Malcolm. And he's on his way to meet John Hammond, who is played by the late, great Richard Attenborough. We see Hammond. He seems to be a lot older, a lot more frail, fragile. He's still he's got his cool cane. Sick. Yeah. yeah. And we see that Hammond has lost control of his company, InGen, mm-hmm. to his nephew, Peter Ludlow. 
who's i mentioned the bob balaban guy he, mm-hmm. he's not bob balaban but he looks just but he like looks him. a lot like him yeah yeah that could easily be the have a good look costanza guy. <laughs> speaking of which <laughs> mr did Pitt. you yes yes I, okay i'm glad you caught that because i'm not even sure he has a line but yes yeah so john john hammond's butler is ian abercrombie mr pitt from seinfeld star of puppet master three toulon's revenge so it's great to see him here. Yeah, so we got Mr. Pitt, and like I said, Hammond's lost control of his company to his nephew. And it's all because this, the, because the little British girl was attacked. She's fine, they point out. She's fine. Her mm-hmm. injuries weren't severe, so I'm sure she had chunks of flesh ripped off of her body. But Hammond has put together a team, and he wants Jeff Goldblum to join it, because he wants to send them to Isla Sorna to document the dinosaurs in their natural habitat. Mm-hmm. And by natural habitat, what he means is Isla Sorna was a sister island to Isla Nublar, and this sister island was where they were creating the dinosaurs and then shipping them mm-hmm. to the Jurassic Park island. Site B. And then a big hurricane came through and took everything out, and people had to abandon the island, and then dinosaurs uh, 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 just found a way to survive on the island. Hammond wants them to go there, document the dinosaurs, in, in kind of like a naturalist way to kind of show the public that these are creatures and they should be left alone and this whole island should be Mm -hmm. turned into like a nature preserve i don't know which he's he would need a lot of cooperation from the costa rican government at that point i know who who i'm sure didn't even know right what role does public opinion play in this when (laughs) i i don't know it's a little confusing but this is john hammond has done a 180 he is well not even quite a 180 because it's not like the first movie, he is, you know, he's... He's an optimist in the first movie, and he's he's ever the optimist in this movie. Yeah, the, the first movie doesn't present him as corrupt, evil businessman just trying to make a buck off of dinosaurs. I mean, that's kind of what he is, but the film presents him as more just not understanding the seriousness of what he's done, whereas in the book, he is just a greedy asshole. And I almost wonder, like, is, is that... Richard Attenborough, like, this guy's just too likable. We can't make him an asshole. Like, That's gotta be He looks it, like right? Santa Claus. And, That's gotta you know, be it. Yeah, so it might be that. But, like, here, he's, like, a naturalist. He wants these animals preserved. He recognizes them as animals, not as engine property or anything like that. So, Unlike a his bit nephew. of a 180. Yeah. Yeah. This team that Hammond's putting together, he's hoping Jeff Goldblum's gonna join it, who immediately says... No, like, are you fucking nuts? After after the ends of the first movie, I'm never seeing another dinosaur in my life. And Hammond goes, oh, okay, well, I've already got three other people on the team. We've got Vince Vaughn, who's a photographer and, <laughs> like, climate activist. Only to bang chicks, by the way. At first, he's just a photographer. We don't know he's an activist until later, and he mentions he joined, is it Greenpeace? Something uh, For like the that. women? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then... <laughs> Halfway through the movie, it's revealed that he's like a revolutionary. Like, what? Where the fuck did this? He's like a. <laughs> you say climate? No, he's just like a science terrorist. It just kind of comes out of nowhere. He is, but he, but it's like to protect animals and stuff, right? That's why he takes the bullets. Oh yeah, out. yeah. No, I, I. He's he's like a an extreme peta, basically. Yeah, yeah. But the but the movie introduces him as a sleazy asshole who only cares about activism because so he can get his dick wet. It's just strange <laughs> to see that change. Yeah, that's why I love Vince Vaughn. <laughs> There's another guy on the team, played by Richard Schiff. Eddie Carr, he's a field equipment expert. 
Which means he likes lots of gadgets and has lots he of likes, gadgets. He likes, yeah, he's Q, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's no, e. Okay, a couple things about, well, one, Richard Schiff, of course, from the West Wing. He, I like his interactions with between he and Goldblum. Because yeah. these are like the two most sarcastic people who have ever lived. And they're like, <laughs> they're having like a sarcasm off, like at times, like that's fun. The third member of this team is Sarah Harding, played by Julianne Moore. She is Jeff Goldblum's girlfriend? Yeah. Knowing that information, Jeff Goldblum's like, okay, fuck it, I'm in, I gotta go save her, this turned into a rescue operation. And then we get this scene where he's talking to his black daughter, who got dropped from the gymnastics team, which comes back later. Yeah, yeah, it comes back in the least satisfying (laughs) way possible, yeah. Maybe the dumbest thing. Jurassic Park has never been better than that scene, but we'll get to it. That might be the dumbest thing in any Spielberg movie, right? I think so, yeah. There's some contentions, you know, you could say the 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 nuking the fridge in the fourth Indiana Jones, oh, yeah. the swinging well, that's, from that's the retarded. vines. There's, there's a lot of things in that fourth Indiana Jones movie alone, but I'm not sure any of them are dumber than yeah, a no, middle we'll... school gymnastics <laughs> player <laughs> swinging around and killing a raptor. It's just terrible. Yeah, yeah that's the peak of Jurassic Park right there. Yeah, so Jeff Goldblum, he's talking to his, his daughter, Kelly, and he's like, no, you can't come. And she goes, well, why not? And he goes, because it's dangerous. There's dinosaurs. Uh, no, not... he doesn't say, he doesn't tell her anything about oh, that's right. yeah, what just it like, is, because this, this is all top secret. He doesn't want her to worry, because he doesn't mention dinosaurs. You're right, Had he you're mentioned right. that, she probably wouldn't have snuck on. Yeah, so because Jeff Goldblum is kind of like a laissez-faire dad, she does sneak on to like this giant RV that they bring with them, and... She shows up a little later in the movie. Turns out Sarah Harding, a.k.a. Julianne Moore, is already on the island. She's been there for like three days. So Jeff Goldblum and Vince Vaughn and Richard Schiff, they all head down. And they make their way onto the island. And they find her pretty quickly. Jeff Goldblum finds her bag and it's got like a hole in it. He goes, oh my gosh, she's been attacked. And they find Sarah taking photos of some stegosaurus. Which, by the way, in this movie, she constantly does the total opposite of what you're supposed to be doing. Like, she's just stupid (laughs) in this movie, and I don't know why they wrote her like that. Like, when they meet her, she's taking photos of these stegosaurus, and she goes, oh, wow, it's good to see you guys. Thanks for coming. And then she, like, jumps off this log into a puddle, and she goes, do you got a granola bar? Which, later on, she's like, don't touch anything, don't you know, fuck with the nature So here. what do you have a problem with, the granola bar or the puddle? Well, the puddle, because, you know, if you're going to yeah, be... Yeah, you wouldn't... Well, yeah, yeah. yeah you, you wouldn't splash around in your in your boots that came from, you know, fucking New no, York or that's, whatever. that's true. And then on top of that, she goes up to this baby stegosaurus. This is like the first real shot of real dinosaurs, not the little tiny dinky things that you get in the movie. It's like this pod of stegosaurus hanging out in the woods. So, yeah, so Sarah's taking photos of these stegosaurus, and then she walks up to a baby stegosaurus and immediately fucking touches it. <laughs> she starts petting its nose and then it lets out this little cry and then all the big mommy and daddy stegosauruses come along and try to stomp her and swing their big giant mm-hmm. spiky tails into her yeah so this scene kind of irritated me because it is in terms of the story structure this is the equivalent of the first scene when they see the brachiosaurus in the original jurassic park which is a beautiful scene filled with classic spielberg wonderment there's a little bit of that here it doesn't mean as much this, yeah it doesn't mean the, the quite the same thing because uh jeff goldblum's already seen them but for everyone else they're like oh my god and 
But then it immediately turns into an action scene, and it's just like, oh. You know. Yeah, well, also, I forgot to mention, this is like the second part of the movie. This is what I've called Expedition Isla Sorna. So okay. it's like getting to the island, they're on the island, talking to Julianne Moore. And, but like, you're right, this immediately turns into like an action scene. And then immediately after, she jumps in a puddle and touches a baby stegosaurus. Vince Vaughn goes to light up a smoke because he's like, dude, I've taken some great fucking pictures. And he goes to light up a smoke and Julianne Moore's like, uh, no, no, you can't do that. We're here to document, not interact with. It's like, bitch, you just fucking petted a baby stegosaurus and made yeah. all these other stegosaurus try to kill you. What are you talking about? God, ugh, she's such an annoying character, but I like Julianne more. Yeah, this is this is not her best role. And speaking of somebody else's not best role, I've never seen this child actor before. I'm 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 almost so. Positive. Then what do you know? It might be her best role. But they discover that she's a stowaway because they're walking back to their RV and there's a fire. Turns out she was trying to cook some like breakfast or whatever for all these people. And Jeff Goldblum's like, "Oh my God, why are you here? Why did you stow away, you fucking stupid kid? We got to get you home." So for like the next little chunk of the movie, they're, Jeff Goldblum and his daughter are trying to contact somebody offshore to come and pick her up. And everybody else is just kind of hanging out, except for Julianne Moore, who's like, I'm going to stay here and I'm taking photos and I'm interacting with them because this is the chance of a lifetime. So I want to say a couple things about the Ian Malcolm character. Yeah, go for it. Does he seem like the same character to you in this movie? Well, I guess maybe you haven't seen the first one. Well, you know what I remember? I remember from the first one, he was very kind of like, I mean, he was sarcastic, but he was a bit of a Debbie Downer in the sense that he was like, look. He's just incredibly cynical. He is, yeah. He's incredibly cynical, and he seems to be less cynical in this and more afraid, which is understandable. It's strange. There's a bit of both because I feel like, I feel like it's very, very not in his character to even want to go back to the island, even if his girlfriend's there. Yeah, I, he still always has those sarcastic comments about like when he's getting ready to to take his um daughter and they're leaving. Everyone else is still at the, the island. He's like, um, Eddie, you know, Richard Shift, you want to can I get a, a mailing address for your wife, loved one so I can uh, send her <laughs> your your remains or whatever. <laughs> so, like yeah. he's he's doing like stuff like that. And that feels like in his character. Yeah. Well, but he, I feel like just as a whole, though, he, it just doesn't seem right. I think, like, that character shines through, especially at the beginning when he's talking to John Hammond. Don't worry, Ian. I'm not making the same mistakes again. No, you're making, you're making all new ones. Yeah, that's a, that's a great line. But as soon as he gets to the island, he becomes action hero. He almost becomes like, like a Roland Emmerich-type father figure. You know what I mean? His interactions with his kid were better than I remembered them. Some of those scenes felt kind of real to me, like like their relationship. It felt like there was pain in Ian Malcolm when when he says something about like, "Listen, I'm not the one who left you and to just go live in Europe," and then he like immediately regrets it because that's apparently, or this girl's mother has just dipped. Yeah, which it seems more like Jeff Goldblum would be the one that dipped, but you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. As they're kind of dealing with Kelly, like a dozen in-gen helicopters appear in the skies with like Hummers and Jeeps and stuff dangling from them. And this is the coolest scene in the movie by far. This is the best scene in the movie. Yeah, all these like Hummers and Jeep things are just cruising along like through this valley chasing and like wrangling all these dinosaurs. And they all have like these cool tranquilizer guns. And you see Peter Ludlow there. 
he is in charge of this in-gen group to collect these dinosaurs and hopefully bring them back to the States. And the guy leading this group is an actor named Pete Postlethwaite. I believe that's probably how you pronounce it. And his character's name is Roland Tembo. He's a big game hunter. And he's the coolest fucking dude in this movie. He is the coolest dude. Also, again, going back to if you watch the version with the deleted scenes, this is not the first time we meet him, which is unfortunate. That scene didn't really add anything. There's a scene in uh, Mombasa where he meets his friend RJ. Oh. And they're just like having dinner. That scene didn't really do anything, but I will say like the film clearly is trying to make him close to RJ in a way that doesn't really translate At to all, film. Because like, I don't they're think supposed you to be, like, even best friends. see the two of them interact on screen. In- Just a little bit because they, they, they're the ones staking out the T-Rex baby, but like RJ barely has any lines. He's also in brown face, I think, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. But yeah, Pete Poslethwaite, or however you say that name, great actor, Irish actor. Character actor, right? Yeah, in the name of the father, Academy Award nominee and the Daniel Day-Lewis movie. I'll always remember him from The Lost World because I saw this movie so often as a kid. But he's in, he made it into at least one Christopher Nolan movie because he's the dying, like, father in Inception. The The entire movie is, like, oh. built around him even though he's, like, barely on screen and he has, I don't know if he has a line, but he's Killian Murphy's dying father oh, in Inception. I didn't even recognize him. Well, why would you? He's got like a, a giant beard in that yeah. and he's like 90 <laughs> years old or whatever, but yeah. Yeah. Well, another great actor is Peter Stormare and he kind of plays the second sure. in command under Dieter. Under, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's Dieter under under Tembo and he's great. He's a real fucking dick, but he's great. So yeah, so these guys are just cruising along, wrangling up dinosaurs and Tembo can't pronounce any of the Latin names much like myself. So he just like points at the Yeah. The 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 stone the pachycephalosaurus. Yeah. He's like uh, the bald one, the bald one, uh, fire the tuck. fire tuck, <laughs> yeah. and then he, the Parasaurolophus. He's like the one with the pompadour, Elvis. Yeah, that's um, yeah, great. But that stuff's a lot of fun. Well, then also like all the technology in this scene is so cool. Like there's a bit when like Dieter shoots one of the dinosaurs. He looks to his driver. He goes like put me out and he's on like a little like crane arm and he gets like yeah. pushed out of the jeep with his rifle on his seat and he shoots the dinosaur and then he's brought back in and it's just so fucking cool there's a lot of things i like about this scene one just the blending of the environments and the effects with like the real things is i think nobody ever did that better than spielberg and this scene really made me think that in the particular when they're circling the parasaurolophus which is this big, you know, 15, 16 foot tall dinosaur. And they've got some ropes around its neck and it swings around. And then there's people are yeah. like, swinging <laughs> yeah. and then they like hit the ground. And it's like the dinosaurs all CG. Those are stunt people. It's like amazing. Yeah. You can, you forget that there even is an effect there. And I, I really think Jurassic Park in particular is talked about a lot of times. Like it's the one movie from back then from 30 years ago that still has like effects that stand up today well you know it's funny the only effects that don't stand up in this movie are everything like trailer related as in as like when it falls off the cliff or like things when they get back to san diego and things are like blowing up like the ship is crashing into things i was talking about the first movie here but oh i think like if you watch and i no, i mean it, it ties into the second one but if you actually watch that movie you will see effects that don't look great Mm -hmm. by today's standards but they still work better than better effects and i think it's just because of how spielberg is able to use them how he 
how he how he shoots them you know it's like it's like what we were talking about with the original godzilla it's that yeah it's a guy in a costume but it's shot in a way where you kind of forget about that a lot of times whereas you they don't do that in the sequels and here it's like well one they have the awesome animatronics which they utilize really well most of the time there's Mm. some kind of where they move a little too stiffly or whatever not as bad as the animatronic baby godzillas though um (laughs) There's a scene where that baby like eats a fish and he like goes up that like looks like something from like a Universal Studios yeah, ride or something. You can almost and hear the servos in it. Yeah. Yeah. But and then I think like just the how Spielberg directs actors and you know maybe even extras who interact with these CG animals is it, it, he does it better than you know, movies that have a lot more CG than this do. Like, even, even the little girl with the consignathus, how she's reacting when that thing jumps at her. Like, there's not a... She's not reacting to anything. Yeah. That's acting and that's directing of the actors. And really, I think nobody has done that better than Spielberg, you know. That was really my biggest takeaway from this movie because it's it's got some great effects it's got some like eh, you know like there's the stegosaurus stuff doesn't look amazing it looks good but the cgi during the daytime definitely doesn't look as good as it does at night but i'm just like still kind of in awe of like spielberg knew how to shoot these effects and and make them as convincing as possible even if they're not by today's standards the best like i still think of the the original jurassic park and maybe this movie is like more satisfying from a visual aspect visual effects standpoint than um i see i don't want to throw avatar under the bus what are other big modern blockbusters i can't think of movies well, now. even like, even like the newer jurassic park movies i haven't seen the newest yeah one, yeah that, that's actually a perfect perfect comparison i i feel the effects are technically better in the new jurassic but something feels less real about it. And Absolutely, I think, I, I think yeah. what Spielberg did really well, other than directing these extras or actors, is that he put them in a scene that was very believable. Like, th- there wasn't necessarily anything super over the top. Like, there's a bit later on in this movie where you have, like, raptors jumping onto rooftops, and that's a little ridiculous. But if we go back to the first Jurassic Park, when you have, like, the raptors in the kitchen... Yeah, as puppets and a bit one of, of my one of my favorite scenes ever. That well, as a kid, that was my favorite scene ever. Right, or, or, or even or even the introduction of the T Rex in the first one. It's pissing down rain. You can barely see anything, yeah. and then this T Rex stumbles out of the dark into the rain, and it just looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. This movie, you have a lot more stuff where it's sunny, bright, clear weather. There's not as many shadows for the most part. Yeah, the only in the original, the only like sunny cgi is that first brachiosaurus which of all the effects in that movie that looks the worst and also like the only other sunny scene is after the t-rex knocks down the t-rex skeleton well yeah that and that's yeah the indoors yeah sure but this movie i mean it 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 looks pretty cool it looks believable and as again as you're saying it's because of the actors for the most part and and you make it all more believable instead of doing all CG. You have to mix it with real practical effects. Yeah, that's always been the strength of these early Jurassic Park movies. The animatronic T Rex head is the most terrifying thing anyone has ever seen in a film. <laughs> and so to be able to use that and the CGI, like obviously use the CGI if it's moving a lot or something, but to just have those shots of the T Rex head or of a raptor or whatever, just or or the dying tri- the sick triceratops in the original Jurassic Park like those just feel so much more it just makes it feel so much more real yeah yeah i agree 
Well, speaking of real, a very kind of real-world, ultra-capitalist bad guy plot kind of unfolds because we see that Ludlow and his goonies, his cronies, have captured all these different kinds of dinosaurs. And they have, like, this Skype meeting with all these investors. And he's like, look, my uncle was going to create a Jurassic Park in San Diego, but he scrapped that for whatever reason. Instead, he... Yes, so the original idea for Jurassic Park was to build an amphitheater to just, like, show off these animals. But Mm -hmm. then he abandoned that because he thought a theme park would be much more profitable i guess but yeah and he's like well look it's going to be cheaper for us we already have all these crazy wild dinos hanging out on this island all we have to do is ship them back and open it to the public you'll make money i'll make a hell of a lot of money and uh, there's also a really weird joke about he says it's going to be in san diego and he's like the public already associates san diego with animal attractions there's the san diego zoo yeah sea world <laughs> The San Diego Chargers? Yeah, and I was like... What the fuck is that? Yeah, I was like, I don't get it, so I'm... (laughs) As a kid, I remember laughing at that, but, like, it doesn't really make... It's a weird joke to make, and I'm not sure if they're trying to say anything or if it's just a terrible joke. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I I, I just kind of chalked it up to it's a joke that... Well, you're not a sports guy too, so so it's it's not, not that you don't know who the Chargers are. They're now in Los Angeles, but... There could be a, a deeper meaning in there that you might not know, but like I don't think I know of a meaning. Julianne Moore and Vince Vaughn, they they see all this happening and they're like, "Hey!" <laughs> and Vince Vaughn goes, "Hey, I'm I'm an extremist. I'm an environmental animal protectionist extremist." He's like, "John Hammond told me that this might happen." Which is also why he sent me along. And he pulls it like a pair of pliers, and they just start going around and breaking all the locks on all the dino cages. Mm-hmm. This this part's pretty cool. The animatronics of the dinosaurs in the cages is amazing when they unlock the Triceratops. Oh, and he just and snorts it just, out like, all that breathes. dust. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. That's yeah, awesome. Julianne Moore, her and Vince Vaughn break out all these dinosaurs, and it just leads to panic. And this fucking Triceratops <laughs> rams through this tent where Ludlow's giving his little his little talk, and I think it flips a car into a tree where it almost mm-hmm. kills rj and roland yeah which by this point they've captured a baby t-rex because they want to lure out the male t-rex yeah i don't yeah i don't think we've said this but the whole reason roland is going on this he doesn't give two fucks about dinosaurs he doesn't as we've established he doesn't even want to be paid right yeah but as we've established he doesn't even know what these things are he is essentially captain ahab he is after one prize and one prize only he has hunted everything in the world that could kill him except for a tyrannosaurus rex so that's what he wants (laughs) it is the coolest character motivation for the best character ever this guy is so awesome this is actually something both films we talk about today have in common both films feature supporting characters that are way too good for the movie they're in Oh, are, are you going to say Jean Reno? Jean Reno in in uh, Godzilla is way too cool for that movie also. But yeah, this I, I think Roland even more so. Yeah, so this car almost gets flipped into a tree. Him and RJ hop out. And then Vince Vaughn stumbles upon this baby T-Rex and he notices it has like a broken leg. So what does he do? He takes it back to Julianne Moore, who said, who instead of saying, dude, let's fucking leave it. She goes, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Are you crazy? Oh my God, mm-hmm. it's got a broken leg. Oh my God, let's take it back to the RV and fix it. <laughs> yeah. There is some like, okay, we don't want to interact with these animals any more than we have to, but... The leg has clearly been broken by a human. 
because it had like a stake through it so there i do understand like okay we you know humans screwed this thing up it's going to die we need to help it out like i sort of understand that i'm okay with this scene but also it's a t-rex leave it i know i know it is cute though i will say it's 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 annoying though it's it's (laughs) it's yeah yeah. it's it's got the really annoying noise well this this point in the movie is the new section we're moving into that i have labeled trailer troubles (laughs) the the mommy's very angry section of the film so they take the baby back to the rv and as soon as they bring it in jeff goldblum's daughter kelly is like i don't like this anymore i do in fact want to go home and i should have listened to you dad i'm sorry so he takes her to Eddie. The high hide. Which I want to ask, how does this work? Because they're above the tree line. What are they held on to? An even bigger tree. <laughs> I would I, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense <laughs> to doesn't. me. They should be in the trees, not above them. Unless it's like a tower, but it can't be. I think we're supposed to think he tied it to a giant fucking tree. and he's That we just never see? Correct, yeah. No, because he uses the winch on the car to lift it. So yeah. so it's got to be through like over a tree, but it's a, apparently a giant tree that has them sitting 30 feet above the rest of the trees. Yeah, so they're hanging up out up there, the three of them. Then they see treetops start to kind of like shimmy and shake, and Jeff Goldblum's like, oh my god, I got to get back to the RV to warn them because they're not picking up their fucking phone that I've tried yeah. calling. So Jeff Goldblum rappels down. Runs back to the RV. He gets there. He picks up the baby dinosaur. He goes, we got to get rid of this fucking thing. And then next thing you know, two T-Rexes show up. But it's a great shot because you see like the face of of this one T-Rex, the head and the eye looking into the trailer. Mm -hmm. And then the camera kind of turns to the other window of the RV and there's a second T-Rex standing there. Mm -hmm. And you're like, holy shit, they're in deep water, dude. Julianne Moore is is covered in in baby T-Rex blood. She walks the baby dinosaur outside of the trailer, gives it back to the T-Rexes, and then they seem to walk away. And they're like, oh, wow, they really are loving and caring and are just coming to get their baby. They don't want to hurt us. Yeah, this is um, this is where it becomes clear that the Julianne Moore character, part of her motivation for being here. I mean, this was true of the Stegosaurus earlier, but she w- wanted to prove that these animals had parental instincts Mm -hmm. and i guess this is never really drawn attention to in the movie but we remember from the first one that the dinosaurs are created with dinosaur dna and also frog dna to fill in the gaps yeah am i wrong in saying that you wouldn't be able to make a scientific conclusion about a dinosaur from studying these things because they're like weird hybrids they're not really truly the dinosaurs that lived and walked 65 million years ago I mean, I think, like, scientifically, I think you'd be correct. But in terms of the movie, I guess it's close enough. I almost wonder if they're just kind of hoping that you forgot that and just like, yeah, these are full dinosaurs because it's just never really mentioned in the series after that. Yeah, and also on top of that, they had a paleontologist <laughs> eaten for believing that, that, that they have parental tendencies. For believing that they didn't have parental tendencies. Oh, that was it, so yeah. thought they were just hunters. <laughs> They give the baby T-Rex back, and you think everything's all well and good. And then (laughs) almost immediately after, one of their Mercedes SUVs gets flipped over a cliff. And then (laughs) the whole trailer gets flipped upside down and partially pushed off this cliff 
by these. It's an awesome shot from within the trailer as it's flipping over. That's oh, it is really yeah. cool. Yeah, some awesome stunt work there. Well, then it's also great. So then the, the trailer is essentially two trailers connected, and one whole half is up on the cliff, and the other whole it's half like one of those um, Toronto subways. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. Um, where it's <laughs> yeah. Con- there, every each train is connected to each other, but it's got like the little accordion on the outside covering it yeah well luckily for our characters the hitch that's connecting this trailer or the accordion i guess that's connecting this trailer is very strong because one whole half of it is dangling off the cliff yeah and eddie realizes that something's happened so he rushes down out of his high hide to help them so also the t-rexes has left have left at this point they yeah they pushed the trailer off and then they're skedaddling so he shows up in his Mercedes, and he's just kind of fumbling around. He's trying to help them. He's trying to throw them some rope. He ties a rope around a tree as they're hanging off a rope because the bottom, like the back window of the RV has broken, and it's just open to a thousand-foot drop into the ocean. Well, after there's a very intense scene of Julianne Moore lying on top of the glass as it slowly starts to break. That's a good scene. I also like that Vince Vaughn is reaching for the satellite phone, and that's what yeah. breaks the glass. And now this scene, this entire scene with the trailer hanging over the edge, absolutely ridiculous, particularly the glass, the slowly breaking glass, but at the same time, so well directed that it's still really tense and fun to watch, but it is absolutely absurd. So Eddie does save them. He hooks his car's winch up to the front of the RV, and just as the whole RV is going to slide off the cliff... He starts reversing in his in his car, and he kind of keeps the RV on solid ground so they can a- attempt to hang on. As everything seems like it's going their way, the T-Rexes show up again, and they yeah. start eating Eddie's car. Oh, you're eating the car! Don't eat the car! Not the car! Eventually, they just eat him, and it's a really brutal death. He gets ripped in half. He does. He Yeah, they toss him up in the air, and then the other, other T-Rex pulls on him, so it's just ripped in half. I remember as a kid watching this scene with my grandmother. I was young, and when they did this, I think she was concerned about how disturbing it would be to me, so she's just like, oh, they're just playing with him. I'm like, no, Grandma, I know they just murdered him. That's fine. I I'm, <laughs> I, I can live with that. I'm five years old or whatever, but I Wasn't like the it? movie. and. Wasn't it you saying, weren't we talking about Jurassic Park, and this was years ago, and you said that when you were a kid you didn't understand how they yes, could murder this actors? Is, <laughs> this is the scene in particular where that stood out to me, where I, as a kid, I don't know why I would have thought this, but like I didn't understand that. I thought if people died in movies, they died in real life. So I remember <laughs> as a kid actually like going through it in my head and this poor eddie guy how much money they would have had to have paid his family like maybe if he had like cancer he is bald maybe he had cancer and he's like sure (laughs) steven spielberg you can rip me in half just uh pay my family handsomely and uh, yeah i don't know why i would have thought that that's great though i love it this scene kind of bothers me though because I think in general, one of the biggest reasons why The Lost World is a lot worse than the original Jurassic Park is the original Jurassic Park is a science fiction film. Mm -hmm. All the sequels are just kind of monster movies. Yeah, and there there doesn't really seem to be a strong enough plot to hold the movies together. But in in, in particular, this scene, I guess, bothers me because Eddie is the only heroic character that <laughs> in the entire movie up to this point. Mm-hmm. And how does he get repaid? Like, yeah, I get it. They're animals, they're monsters, whatever. 
they they don't discriminate. They'll just kill whatever. But like in a Jurassic Park movie, you kind of want to see the bad guys get it, or like which we do see that yeah. in a lot of instances. But like, why does this like poor innocent Eddie guy get the most brutal death? And I'm just thinking like in Jurassic World, which I saw a little bit of on television the other day. There's that assistant to Bryce Dallas Howard who oh yeah who gets, gets eaten by the mosasaur, doesn't she? Yeah, she gets yeah. picked up by like a pterodactyl, and it's like that scene goes on for like way too long, and it's like why are we taking joy in torturing this poor woman? This woman hasn't done anything wrong. Do this to do this to vincent d'onofrio in that movie right (laughs) right like it's just kind of strange i mean i understand like if they are just animals and not monsters they should probably just kill whoever but if you're doing like a if you're doing like a monster thing like aliens like paul reiser needs to get a worse death than some of the other characters right because he's an asshole he's the reason they're in trouble you know yeah well even like this movie doesn't treat them as animals so it this movie literally does treat them as monsters for the most part yeah you know whereas like even like the first jurassic park treated them for the most part as animals animals fumbling around a kitchen smelling out children trying to eat them you know whereas in this movie you just say eating out children (laughs) yeah No, 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 I did not. Ah, 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 you didn't say the magic word. I guess getting back to the movie, Julianne Moore, Jeff Goldblum, and Vince Vaughn somehow managed to survive because the trailer falls off the cliff and they just fly through the trailer on their rope. All the InGen guys show up and, fuck, what's his name again? The cool, the, the cool big game Roland. hunter guy? Yeah, Roland shows up and helps them up, up the cliff. And this is our Lord of the Rings section of the film where we get some of those wonderful shots of them all trekking about the wilderness. <laughs> so this is a the lot section. of shots that like remind me of like the Fellowship of the Ring. I know, eh? Well, this is the section I call Hellish Hike. Because Jeff Goldblum and everybody have lost all of their technology and stuff in the trailer, and everybody else's technology on the InGen side was destroyed. Oh yeah, the Triceratops <laughs> stomped the shit out of everything. <laughs> yeah. everything. They have no way of calling for help either. Yeah, Yeah. so so Roland goes, look, there's an abandoned facility in the interior of this park, and we're going to have to walk there, and it's like 10 miles or something. Something we didn't mention before is that the interior has most of the carnivores, whereas the exteriors of the island have the herbivores. I like these scenes a lot. Because this is where the movie gets to slow down a bit, and we just get a lot of the Roland character and his interactions with Vince Vaughn. I like these scenes because they really, you know, Roland's an asshole. He's just there to hunt a T-Rex, but at the same time, he's, he, like, has a code. He's not as big an ass—he's not the villain that Ludlow is. Yeah. And you can actually see that he, he responds more to Vince Vaughn and— even though he thinks Vince Vaughn's an asshole, um, he responds more to Vince Vaughn and Julianne Moore than he does to Ludlow, his employer. And even the other men respond to Vince Vaughn when he does that. Yes. Like, uh, yeah. We, we got to get moving, Let's guys. Get like, moving. They don't listen to Ludlow because he's just this corporate suit who. Uh, and these guys are all like borderline mercenaries, I guess, right? Yeah, I, I think that's what they're supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're heavily armed. I guess they're. Yeah, animal control. I don't know. Yeah, Yeah, well, this whole kind of, like, section is great because, like you said, you you get more... Roland. Thank you. I wanted to call him Ludlow. You get more Roland. Everyone needs more Roland in their life. But you get to to learn that Roland isn't necessarily a bad guy. He's just a guy who was hired to do something. And he's not even accepting the money. He's just doing it for the experience. 
I think they compare him to, there's like a weirdly forward line, which I guess this was always around, but they say something about like a dentist out on a safari or something. Yeah, well, he, he says to which, Ludlow. He's like, yeah, he says it to Ludlow. You're right. Yeah, but that's that's funny because a few years ago was the, the lion. Um, oh, yeah, that was killed by the dentist, right? Yeah. <laughs> was, and I'm like, was it always, is it always dentists that go out there? I don't, I don't Maybe know. Maybe it is, dude. Maybe it is. But he is just this guy and he's got a code and he understands the animals not because he doesn't really care about the paleontology of it all but he understands the animals in the sense that he understands animals he understands hunting patterns you know he's just like hey the t-rex just fed so he's not gonna hunt us Mm -hmm. he's just really interesting i love this guy i want an entire movie about this guy really so this scene so they're all walking and right when they take this kind of like larger break Roland notices that Julianne Moore brushes up against a shrub and she leaves like a bunch of blood on this bush. Mm-hmm. And he goes over to her and says, you know, are, are you okay? Are you hurt? And she goes, oh no, it's just some like T-Rex blood on me and it hasn't dried because it's so humid out. And you can see that Roland is kind of like, oh fuck, dude, you're carrying around like predator blood on you? This isn't good. But before he even has the chance to react, he gets like pulled aside by, by Ludlow to do something or talk about something. Yeah, and then this is, of course, the scene when Dieter goes to go to use the little boy's room. Yeah, actually, I think he says the little girl's room, which is, you know, gross. And then he gets attacked by the Compsognathuses, who we had a setup earlier where um, he saw a (laughs) Compsognathus who, um, he's with that paleontologist guy, and he's remarking, he's like, the thing's so so timid, it's not afraid of me. And the guy's like, well, he's never seen a human, he has no reason to be afraid. And then he just... zaps him with a cattle prod and he's like oh he's got a reason to be afraid now and so they get their revenge those compsognathuses yeah and that's and that's a great death scene because yeah they kind of tackle him behind this log and then you just hear him screaming and then he stops and then a bunch of blood in this stream comes around the edge of the log there. There's some incredible shots, too, of, like, when he's in the middle of, like, the creek, and then they just all come running on him. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's great. And then, of course, this is all not noticed by anyone because the his Costa Rican buddy or whatever that he said that he's going to go to the bathroom is listening to his Walkman. Yeah. He's listening to Latin music <laughs> on his Walkman. Yeah. yeah. So Dieter gets killed, and... As they're moving out, that's when Roland realizes that he's gone. He goes, look, me and RJ and whoever else are going to go look for, for Dieter. We'll catch up with you at like the next camp. Mm-hmm. It's like nighttime. Everybody's asleep. And Roland and RJ come back. And Jeff Goldblum says something like, did you find your Dieter? And <laughs> Roland says, only the parts that they didn't like. Yeah, it's, it's a great response. Yeah, and then he says, look, this abandoned Jurassic Park facility is like a mile and a half from here. We'll let everybody sleep for another hour, and then we're going to fucking mm-hmm. move again, because we got to go. Also, meanwhile, I don't remember exactly when it happens, but Vince... Oh, no, it was at that break when they're yeah, sitting yeah. down, because he he set his gun down, but Vince Vaughn switched out roland's bullets yeah for like empty shell casings yeah because roland had this cool double barrel shotgun and he's going to use it to bring down this t-rex and vince vaughn was like mm, you can't do that even though it just tried to push me off a cliff you can't that's not right <laughs> you can't do that well also you, you know it's it's like kind of funny because it's like oh i'm gonna deny this guy his you know trophy but at the same time you're also surrounded by 25 other men with automatic weapons like <laughs> 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 There's a decent chance the T-Rex is still getting killed, you I know, didn't whether even it's think rolling that, yeah. or not. Yeah. 
Jeff Goldblum feels the rumbling and he looks in the puddle and he sees like that classic T-Rex puddle rumble. And then Julianne Moore wakes up and she looks above her and she sees her bloody shirt. And then that's when she kind of puts two and two together and she's like, oh, fuck, I fucked up big time, dude. And the T-Rex quietly sneaks between 25 guys who are laying around and shoves his head in the tent with Julianne Moore and Jeff Goldblum's daughter. What was the name of that Mexican dude? Or the, the Hispanic guy? I don't remember. Yeah, anyways, yeah, he wakes know, but up. But he's the one that wakes up and screams. <laughs> yeah, and then everybody wakes up and starts freaking out, and they all scatter. Yeah. And this is the only, at least that I can remember, the only, like, callback to don't move, because the T-Rex can only see based on movement, which there's no, like, scientific reason to believe that that was a thing. That's just, like, a that was a plot device in the first Jurassic Park. But Ian Malcolm is trying to get people, like, don't move, but obviously everyone just panics and they just all run. I almost think maybe he could have... Even to his own team, and then especially when he's with the engine guys, be like, hey, by the way, when you see a giant T-Rex, this is how we survived it in the past. <laughs> you probably should have, you should probably should have prepped them with that, yeah. but you know, whatever. Yeah. Well. <laughs> the movie doesn't pay too much attention to that don't move crap, and I think it's because it's not really scientific, and then it's like, if we don't need it for the plot, let's not use it. Yeah. Another thing that the movies have notably gotten rid of is the Dilophosaurus, which that's one of my favorite scenes from the original when it attacks Newman. But yeah. <laughs> the 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 spitting that causes blindness, again, no scientific reason to believe Dilophosauruses could do that. So I think that's kind of why they phased out the Dilophosaurus. Now see, did it cause blindness or or, or did it just get in his eyes and he lost his glasses? That is also true, but they, they do, when they're going by the Dilophosaurus cage in the tour, they say something like it had a dead a venom that could cause uh, like blindness or, and paralysis or something, but yeah. Well, we're moving on to the section of the movie that I like to call Wascally Waptors. I guess we're just skipping the entire T-Rex scene where they uh, run into the waterfall. Well, and Oh, that's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, and, you're right. And uh, <laughs> Roland is going to shoot it, but then he realizes his bullets are blanks, and then yeah, he goes so he and pulls gets his tranquilizer darts. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you've, you've essentially said the whole scene. That's it. Everybody hides in a waterfall. Well, and... it, it, the the we got to talk about the paleontologist's death, though, because it's the dumbest thing oh, in the it world. It really is. Because they, <laughs> they all go behind the waterfall that the T-Rex can't quite fully reach in. He can lick Julianne more, which is awesome, the the tongue prop but <laughs> yeah, then it is <laughs> but then the um paleontologist finds a snake in his shirt and he's like ah oh, snake and he just kind of runs off and then gets lifted up by his arm and then just the waterfall just becomes bloody yeah which, which is which really is super, yeah awesome and then as the rest of them so then like jeff goldblum shows up and pulls all of his friends out of the waterfall and he thanks vince vaughn for saving his daughter and so as that's going on roland tranks the t-rex we see him shooting mm-hmm. it but we don't know what happens yet and then, and then this is where we cut to the wascally raptors. Please, ra- raptors. raptors yeah, excuse me. <laughs> this is pretty much all the in-gen people that aren't dead or Roland. Pretty yeah. much, right? Because yeah. the, um, the Jeff Goldblum party is behind them. Well, and this scene, because, because I didn't know that RJ was like a real character up until... <laughs> yeah, this we is were talking. Weird. Yeah, like they're running into this tall, like chest high grass, and everybody's ahead of him. And RJ stops and he goes, Don't run into the long grass. Stay out of the long grass. And he takes his backpack off for some reason. And he's like, He keeps on shouting, Stay out of the long grass. And then we get this really yeah. cool shot where these raptors kind of poke their heads up above the mm-hmm. grass. And then there's an overhead shot of like eight raptors pushing through this long grass towards this stream of men running through this grass. Mm-hmm. And they all just start getting taken out by the ankles. And you get that cool, like, raptor noise. 
then you just see like the tail yeah of the oh. grass or something oh it's so cool this is a really well constructed scene it is it is it's one of the standout scenes of the movie i think for sure as much as i don't think this movie's that great it's got like three or four scenes that are just like wow these are these are good spielberg knows how to direct yeah exactly you know, a, a good action scene like this Jeff Goldblum and his friends, they all show up and they can hear people screaming and like a bit of gunfire and stuff like that. And Jeff Goldblum immediately realizes, oh shit, there's probably... Well, he hears the raptors too. He recognizes the sound of the raptors. Exactly. And he's like, oh shit, there's raptors here and we're going to run into this tall grass. So instead of like finding a way around, he goes, guys, just run as fast as you possibly can. And then they fall down like a pit or like like an earth slide, I guess, if you will. It's a shortcut to mushrooms. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, from wascally waptus to shortcut to mushrooms. He injures his leg, so Vince Vaughn runs ahead to this abandoned facility, and he manages to turn on the power and radio for like a like a helicopter to come and pick them up. So Jeff Goldblum, Julianne Moore, and his daughter, they're taking their sweet time to get to this facility, and I think by this point you see that Roland has tranquilized the T-Rex. And Ludlow is contacting people on his satellite phone. He goes, we need a we need a helicopter. We need something fucking big to carry this giant fucking T-Rex. And I got to find this baby T-Rex too. We need that. So the rest of them get to this facility. And this is when the whole raptor stuff kind of is less cool and like ridiculous. Because this is when they turn into movie monsters. Mm-hmm. Where like nothing can stop them. They're knocking down like metal walls and breaking through glass and chasing Jeff Goldblum around. Still some neat stuff, though, neat stunts, and again, the interaction between the CGI raptors and the stuntmen, where a raptor just launches itself at Jeff Goldblum holding a door. Yes, And yeah, then yeah. a stuntman is just, like, thrown through glass. Like, that stuff is really cool. Yeah, again, that stuff is cool. Not a, not a great scene, but Spielberg is able to do a lot with, you know, again, convincing you that this stuff is real. The two worst parts of this scene are when Julianne Moore jumps to another roof from a rooftop that she was on, and then a raptor somehow gets onto the roof and then jumps across the roof as well, and kind of like lands between her and the camera. And you're like, I didn't know they were super powered, you know? Like, I didn't know they could melt steel beams with their laser eyes, Whoa, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. So Julianne Moore jumps from roof to roof, and, and a Velociraptor can't? Yeah, but it, jumps, complaining like, about it that? jumps like 20 feet. I don't care. Okay. <laughs> they, they, they were jumping on top of T-Rexes in the last movie. Like, in, in context of how these raptors are presented, this is perfectly reasonable. Like, in, in the long grass scene, there's a scene where it jumps on a black guy who's screaming and it jumps yeah like that was pretty cool 15 feet in the air <laughs> yeah and, you're right um, that part was pretty cool though well I, th- I think we can both agree though that the worst scene in this movie and possibly one of the worst scenes like ever is when jeff goldblum his daughter and julianne moore are in this little building and this velociraptor has like climbed up into the rafters <laughs> and his daughter Kelly, she starts swinging around from a bar in the rafters like she's in her gymnastics class. And then she goes like, hey, raptor. (laughs) And she swings around some more and then boots it out of a window and it lands on a spike and it gets impaled. And you're like, what the fuck was that? And then there's the the obligatory, they cut you from the team. Yeah, Um, I know. (laughs) Yeah, and it was like, what the fuck? One of the dumbest things ever in a film. It's up there with the, the dog uh, running through the tunnel as as the entire yes. city of Los Angeles yeah. blows up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, this this scene. So everybody's saved by a helicopter, 
And then we cut to Roland and Ludlow. Ludlow's like, look, man, you helped me capture this dinosaur. We're going to bring it back to San Diego. I'm going to need you to work for me. And you're going to make a shit ton of money because I'm going to make a shit ton of money. And I just want you to work for me. Deal? And Roland says, no, I think I've been in the company of death long enough. Mm -hmm. And he just walks away. That's the last time you see him. It's a double meaning too. the company of death. I've been around death too much, but or is in gen. A company of death. Exactly, right? And it's just such Very a cool poetic. way to leave. And you see, the last shot you see of him is he's walking towards this helicopter. Also, could you have... I, I, I looked at the timestamp or whatever. This is about an hour, 40 minutes into the movie. If the movie ends here, would you feel ripped off? Um, no. Is because, this not enough of a movie if it just ends here? No, because, I mean, it is for me. Because this is a climax, This all this raptor stuff. I think it was a pretty good climax. It was like two separate climaxes, and it would be a lead-in to a third movie. Yeah, it, the something with the T-Rex, sure. But but even, like, they could have had Roland kill a T-Rex. And he'd, and he'd be like, I want this body fucking packed up and brought to my house in South Africa or something, you know? Yeah. I would have been totally okay with that because everything that happens next, which is the final act, or what I like to call something in San Diego. Just call it Godzilla. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's a little lackluster. It's terrible. I mean, it's kind of exciting, but it's so dumb. And, well, there's even you know, a Godzilla as, as joke a kid, in this bit. Yeah, oh well, yeah. As a kid, when I, when I was watching this, you know, I, I like enjoy, I enjoy it because it's a dinosaur mayhem running around san diego but like watching it now it's like this is just dumb it's tonally like completely different from the rest of the movie there's just something about a dinosaur also the setup to it the setup to it doesn't make sense so ludlow this is back in san diego now ludlow is doing his presentation to the press and he's going to unveil this tyrannosaurus rex but the ship hasn't arrived in harbor yet but then the ship just crashes (laughs) <laughs> and there's a scene where they they, ever, they all realize the ship's coming in way too fast, so everyone has to kind of run. It's the SS Venture, which is a... Is that King Kong? It's a King Kong reference, because that's the name of the ship. I was actually... I saw that, and I knew it was a reference to something, and I actually thought it was a reference to Dracula at first, because the ship that he shows up in Dracula... When, when, he, when Dracula shows up in London, all of the crew is dead... You could easily have referenced that with this. But no, they did the King Kong thing, and that's fine. But when they go aboard the ship, everyone's dead. Yeah, well, also, we have a returning star. We have a severed hand on a ship's wheel, a la Sam Jackson's severed hand on the Switch. It looks just as plastic and (laughs) shiny, too. Yeah, it's not a good prop. But also, like, what killed these things? The T-Rex wasn't loose. No, I think I think I think I, think I read somewhere. I think I read somewhere that there was a plan to like have a raptor get aboard the ship as well, and that's what caused this. But then they just didn't end up shooting that or something, because that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, well, then even this, like, it seems like they want you to believe that the T Rex did it, but how the hell did the T Rex get into the ship's bridge to kill people? Exactly. People, yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, it, it it doesn't it doesn't make sense. No, and. Um, and yeah, I don't know. So that happens. But the T-Rex gets out. Yeah, and then just starts kind of wreaking havoc around the streets of San Diego at night. Well, first off, he, he drinks water from a from somebody's pool in suburbia and then eats their and, dog. Yes, which is... 
a cute scene. <laughs> it know. is, yeah. Well, because this kid wakes up, he goes, like he wakes up, he looks out his window, sees a T Rex. He goes and wakes up his mom and dad, and he goes, "There's a dinosaur out my window." And these two awful actors are arguing about why their son can't sleep. Oh, it, which I enjoyed that because they're like, it's it's the stupid aquarium, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you just get him a proper nightlight, and I'm like, the guy was sleeping in a bedroom with the door wide open i think that had something to do with it with him not being able to sleep the door is his bedroom door is wide open like you wouldn't even think there's a door there yeah and then they see this fucking t-rex with a doghouse hanging from its mouth (laughs) and then it just kind of like runs around and or runs past like a video store and restaurants there is a really fun gag in the video store where the posters the yeah the, the the cardboard cutouts for the fake movies there's um Arnold Schwarzenegger in, like, King Lear. Yeah, I saw that, yeah. (laughs) And there's, like, some surf movie or something, and then the other one, I think, was, like, another kind of funny thing, like, why would this actor be in that? But I can't remember exactly. But Arnold in King Lear definitely stood out. Yeah, it's great. There's also a scene, uh, David Kep appears in the film. He's the guy with the glasses that is running and he tries to get into oh, I don't and he know, gets the video eaten? store or some store but yeah then he gets eaten that's david oh Kep. that's cool good for him yeah well there's another great scene where this t-rex is running down the street and there's like a crowd of people running and then the camera just pans to like this group of japanese men running <laughs> and they're like yelling gojira 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 and then it pans back to like more people running <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is that racist perhaps austin powers and gold member did it better <laughs> Yeah. But so amidst all this chaos, Jeff Goldblum and Julianne Moore want to lure the T-Rex back, but they need to find the baby T-Rex in order to do that. So they break into the facility, the amphitheater and the warehouse connected with it with the worst security team ever. (laughs) These people are unarmed and they just drive through. You have dinosaurs on your property. You need to shoot trespassers. (laughs) (laughs) From here on out, it's just it's just. Jeff Goldblum and Julianne Moore getting this baby dinosaur back to the ship with a T-Rex chasing them and like busting through like warehouse walls and stuff. Yeah, they they run onto the ship and throw the baby into the cargo hold and they immediately jump off of the ship. But Ludlow's up there and he hears this little baby T-Rex kind of crying. He wanders into the hold. He goes, there you are. And he's trying to catch it. Meanwhile, the big Papa T-Rex shows up behind him and... That's really it, I guess. He the the, the Papa T Rex kind of shows the baby T Rex how yeah, to Yeah, the hunt. baby <laughs> kind of does the killing. Yeah, yeah. And they close, and the Jeff Goldblum closes the cargo door. Yeah, for the yeah. Ship. And so this, so this is what I was talking about earlier with the Eddie, the Richard Schiff death. Like this is the character that you want to see die. Yeah, and yeah. I understand you're going to have a character or two that we like die. You know, some good guys are going to die. But do they have to be ripped in half by two T-Rexes? Like, do, do we no, have to definitely not. such a brutal thing? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, then even right right after his death, they don't they don't mention it for like five minutes until Roland until says, and and it's and he mentions it in the most callous way. He's like, "Well, Rex just fed. I, I think we should be." Oh, that's what Roland says. Yeah. And then there's there was always and I, this always stood out to me as as a kid because it just feels really fake. You know, you know the thing when when you're acting, which Jim, I don't believe you've ever acted, but. I used to be in acting schools, but yes, continue. (laughs) I've done some theater work in my day, but when you say a line and you're supposed to be interrupted, Mm -hmm. the onus is on the other actor to speak up quick enough to truly interrupt you. And I remember we had this, I was acting with this one guy who was like the best actor at my high school, and he 
really challenged the actors that were supposed to interrupt him because he would just say something and then he would just like keep going and like improvise the rest of the line if the person didn't interrupt him fast enough. But in this scene, Roland's like, Rex just fed, so we should be okay. And then Ian Malcolm's like, I assume you're talking about Eddie? He was our friend. He risked risked his life to... And then he just, like, stops, and then there's, like, a three-second pause, and then and then the next line comes in. It's, it's like, shockingly bad. Like, you, yeah, you would expect yeah. that in, like, a bad B-movie or something. It's weirder that it's in a Spielberg movie because it's weird acting. Yeah, it is. There's a lot of weird acting in this movie. Well, okay, I guess. Well, when Jeff Goldblum breaks his leg or whatever, he, he uh, when they're walking through those, like, Brachiosaurus ribs, he's just like, ow, ow. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> <laughs> that that's that was always weird to me as a kid too it's like he doesn't yeah. sound like he's in pain ow, <laughs> he sounds like ow. as an actor he understands he's supposed to be in pain but he's just like doing the bare minimum to communicate that well because i, I want to talk about some weird acting in a second but i guess just briefly the movie ends with kelly and uh julianne moore and jeff goldblum sitting on the couch but the two adults are asleep the news is on kelly's watching the news the ship is halfway back to isla sorna with the Mm -hmm. t-rexes on board and then we have old uh, richard attenborough he's being interviewed and he's like look we have to work with the costa rican government this is a place that will be kind of like a like a haven for these dinosaurs we can't interact with them and them not with us and that's the way it should be yeah and he he echoes the life finds a way line from uh, the first one something like we need to give them a, just a chance to live. Yeah, and then as he's kind of saying that, we get like a... We cut to all these dinosaurs back on the island, and like you said near the beginning of this... Yeah. The the parent T-Rexes are, are nuzzling very, the one. <laughs> a very, very silly shot, because it's basically just like, let's have as many dinosaurs in the shot as possible. <laughs> yeah. And it's just this like herd of stegosaurus is just kind of walking by the apex predator of the island, completely unconcerned. Yeah, and then a, and then a couple pterodactyls flying around well i guess i guess to be i guess to be fair we learn in jurassic park 3 that tyrannosaurus is not the apex predator of the it's the spinosaurus yeah even though that's such a powerful dinosaur that we never even fucking see it in in this movie that always bothered (laughs) me too it's like you can't just like make up a dinosaur and say oh it was here the entire time (laughs) like we would (laughs) have seen it we would have seen it but yeah so that's uh that's the end of the lost world jurassic park and patrick how do you feel about the movie after rewatching it a couple times? I have some mixed feelings on it because I don't think it's that great of a movie. I think it's kind of a lousy script. But there are some really great individual scenes, and I left this movie thinking that Spielberg is like the best director who ever lived, basically. And it, this is not a good movie. This is one of his worst movies. But you watch it and you're like, God damn, does he know how to just shoot a scene? And a special effects scene, an action scene. He just knows what he's doing. The movie's not great. We didn't need the San Diego stuff. I think the movie could have ended at that hour, 40-minute mark, and it would have been probably a little bit better. The San Diego stuff is some fun schlock at times, but it is schlock. But I also think that was just like... Especially when when they have the Japanese people, and then they have the (laughs) David Kep cameo where he gets eaten. You get the sense it's just Spielberg and David Kep and those guys having fun right like they're not really yeah. taking it seriously well, I, i'm also like, wondering if they knew that roland emmerich was making godzilla they may have I, and they're I, like I hey know, wouldn't but, this be fucking funny yeah if we beat godzilla to the to the punch but yeah and and it kind of reminds me of in um catch me if you can there's a scene when 
Leonardo DiCaprio watches like a James Bond movie and then he goes out and buys the exact suit and the exact Aston Martin and he's just like driving down the streets of New York at like 80 miles an hour and they're playing the James Bond theme and it's like (laughs) that didn't need to be in a movie that was just kind of in there because Spielberg wanted to do like a fun little James Bond thing Mm -hmm. like Spielberg likes the James Bond series and that's what this feels like this feels like I like King Kong I like Godzilla we're doing our homage to that but it doesn't need to be in the movie and it is one of the weaker aspects to it but as for like the scenes that hunt scene with the um where they're hunting down those um herbivores that scene's awesome the scene where the triceratops and stuff is trashing the camp is a lot of fun the raptors in the long grass is awesome the raptors with the gymnastics not so awesome <laughs> what you talking about that's the best part of the movie <laughs> But yeah, there's there's like a lot of very good individual scenes, but just the whole doesn't feel like a very rewarding movie. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. But, you know, it's mostly the script and it's just not that interesting. Although that Roland character, he's awesome. Yeah, he's definitely the best character in the movie. It's actually ironic that Spielberg is quoted as saying that Michael Crichton's second Jurassic Park book was lacking narratively in the middle. Yeah, I was I was thinking that too. When yeah, you said when that when this movie lacks for 30, 45 minutes in the middle in the storytelling sense, really. At the same time, those were some of the scenes I liked, though, when it was just them kind of wandering around because that it felt like just this is just old school adventure. It's these people who had all the technology at their fingertips who suddenly that technology has either been trampled by triceratops or thrown (laughs) over a cliff by a t-rex and so now they've just got a few guns and tents and they're just walking like i there was something kind of neat about that yeah like i liked that i liked the camp trashing scene with the triceratops i liked the capture hunt scene but nothing really tied those scenes together like i i think the plot of the movie was a little weak it almost felt like they were making up the plot as they were filming, <laughs> you know? What plot? I don't know. I went into this movie thinking, oh, this is the worst Jurassic Park movie. Other than the new ones, it's I not. haven't... It's better than the third one. The third one is... I have to watch a third one again, but terrible. I remember liking the third one a lot when I was a kid. Also, another thing terrible about the third one, they reuse the Lucky Pack... What? Why? Like in in this movie, it's silly enough. We have the lucky pack. It's oh, Julianne Moore's backpack right. that they see the holes in, and, and a few people are like, "Were you attacked?" And she's like, "No, it's just always like this. It's my lucky pack." And that's what kind of saves her life because that's what she's able to grab on when the glass breaks. And then in Jurassic Park three, Billy has his lucky pack, and but he just it smuggles dinosaur him. eggs in it. Well, he, he saved he smuggles dinosaur eggs in it, but I, it's they it's his lucky pack saves him at one point, and it's like why did they reuse that detail? Because yeah, that, that's that was dumb. dumb in the that was dumb the first time we saw it. Why did we need it the second time? <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. That's <laughs> that's fucking. Wait, stupid. We we get two we get two movies in the series with lucky packs before we get two movies in the series with Dilophosauruses. It's insane. <laughs> One of the most terrifying creatures from the first film is just, uh, <laughs> we're not doing anything with him anymore. Yeah, which is bizarre. And it's really weird to watch this movie. He does. The Dilophosaurus has a, basically like a cameo in the newest one, I think. He had a small scene, I believe. How many How many reboot movies are there? There's been three Jurassic Worlds. Oh my god, three? I thought there's only two. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. This movie, uh, again, I, I went into it thinking it was total shit and i wasn't gonna like it i left it thinking it was better than i remembered because the cg and the special effects were great and not necessarily the acting or the story no not the certainly not the story i also think the 
the themes that it goes for don't really land the way they did in the first film and whether that's just better writing or better acting who knows what's the theme of the first one life finds a way if you if you're fucking with nature it's gonna bite you in the ass this one there's obviously a little bit of that nature stuff but there's not much life finds a way there's a little bit of just like corporate greed yeah it's don't be greedy is that the theme (laughs) yeah but but that's also like it's it's weird because like I think this is true of all the Jurassic movies is that they have such potential if they want it to be, to be like biting social commentary on billionaires and tech billionaires in particular. And and it feels like none of them, they all try to do something and and then just never really works. But then also, I, I don't know if you'd call this a theme, but the whole, they're animals, they're not monsters, they're parents just like any other animal out there and then it's this other paleontologist that's like no actually they're not good parents that's like that just kind of <laughs> like okay like okay like we do that didn't really i don't want to say it doesn't go anywhere but but it doesn't just, no it, it i mean it the that's how they lure the t-rex out but it's just like i don't know uh <laughs> it, it feels like lip service to say like if we're trying to do something about like what dinosaurs were actually like but really it's just like yeah we don't well you know know. it's also it's also funny because like i was reading something that oh fuck i'm gonna mispronounce his name again how do you say the guy's name who wrote it kep kep he was getting letters from children in the mail when it was announced that they were making a second jurassic park and the letters from some of the kids were something to the effect of like as long as you have a t-rex and velociraptor everything else is fine also add a stegosaurus because I like stegosaurus. It just seems like nobody really wanted to make this movie. And they just threw a bunch of random ideas together and thought, yeah, this is passable. <laughs> I, I really do feel like this movie feels like Spielberg is going through the motions. And yet, I think it's a credit to his skills as a director that several scenes are elevated above that. You know? Yeah. It doesn't feel like that all the way through. It feels like that as a whole. But not necessarily scene to scene. Yeah, I agree with that, I think. That's the lost world. But let's move to a world that isn't lost. It's actually very familiar, though it was lost in Hazy Smoke the other day. Okay, so we just did a movie about action star Jeff Goldblum. There was a brief period (laughs) in time where Independence Day was big. Jeff Goldblum is our new action hero guy. Roland Emmerich sees that and says, you know what? I know who can be our next action star. Ferris Bueller. A man who killed somebody in Ireland, yes. Godzilla, released in 1998, directed by Roland Emmerich, who was really hot at the time because Independence Day was huge. Roland Emmerich, of course, loves his big disaster porn. Lots of um, text coming up on the screen telling us where we are because these are all like globe globe trotting, like jumping from location to location. Lots of hackneyed uh family drama Mm -hmm. i don't know if he still thinks this but definitely at the time he thought he was the new spielberg or he certainly wanted to be the new spielberg i don't want to say he took the worst qualities of spielberg but he certainly didn't take some of the best ones in like all of his movies he feels like he has to have like blue collar working class heroes or blue collar working class characters anyways this guy's a scientist that's not blue collar no but then you have people like fucking hank azaria sure 
and he, and he kind of does his own heroic things and you have his wife or girlfriend yeah. or whatever she is and she's out there helping out and then you have like scientist guy who has a, a long lost love or you know some unresolved yeah love issues or whatever and yeah i don't know i don't know i that's just like tropes you have from his movies and i'm sure there's a million more that i'm just not mentioning at the moment but yeah i give rowan emmerich some credit for at least trying with some character i don't think it works i think it's really stupid but i don't know let's you know what let's just get into the fucking movie because this has all come up (laughs) all right So the film begins with a bunch of nuclear tests. We get this like old timey kind of footage. It's in French Polynesia. Mm-hmm. We see iguanas. I think two different species of iguanas. And which Komodo my... dragons. Well, that might have just been a, wa- a monitor lizard of some sort because they all look kind of like oh, that. Oh, okay. But in my research for iguanas, I could find two iguana species, neither of which live anywhere near French Polynesia. So this might be a mistake by the movie. It might be maybe this is just a lizard that I didn't know about. But yeah, because some of them are they're They're like in like North America. They're like not out in the they're like in the Atlantic. They're in the wrong fucking ocean or something. (laughs) This scene's kind of neat, though, with the with the nuclear testing. I like how when they drop the bomb. And there's the mushroom cloud. The music gets really dramatic and modern, whereas earlier it all felt kind of like World War II. Yeah. Like film reel-y. Like it, it opens, there's a little bit of the French national anthem you can hear. Yeah, I like that. I also like that they were using footage of like nuclear tests from like the 50s. But yeah, as the, as the mushroom cloud forms, music gets really dramatic and, and the film slowly starts to feel like more modern. And then eventually the camera pushes in on an egg and then that like old timey sepia filter disappears, and we just see the egg. And actually, all in all, a fairly effective opening scene. You know what? I mean, like I totally agree. And you, but you know what the most effective part of that whole opening scene was? They show a clip of a mushroom cloud, then they cut to an iguana. And I don't know if this is by complete chance, but the iguana's kind of like looking outwards, and then tilts his head and like looks. Yeah, up. he tilts his head. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, that. Ah, that's fucking perfect, dude. Yeah. Why did they make? Godzilla, the result of a French nuclear test. That's so weird to me. And it's not that not that the French didn't have nuclear weapons, not that they didn't do stuff, but but why? Why France? Because they were testing in French Polynesia from 1960 to 1996. Okay, I see. I didn't realize that because I was going to because the your traditional Godzilla story. Let's face it, America's to blame because we <laughs> dropped the nukes on, on Japan and everything. Yeah. And I almost thought this is like a Roland Emmerich, like, eh, we don't need to blame America for this one. And or, I hate you know, the French. He's, <laughs> yeah, he's German. Maybe he just has something against France. I, you know, who knows? But okay, that makes more sense. I didn't realize that the testing was like kind of currently going on or very recently going on. So... After that, we get a Japanese fishing ship attacked, and this is kind of a neat scene. We get the only real glimpses of Godzilla. We see the claws kind of break through the hull of the ship, but the ship goes down pretty quickly, and we've only got one survivor who we catch up with later on. Then we cut to some the most terrifying thing in the film. That's Matthew Broderick driving a car. <laughs> As he drives through... Chernobyl. <laughs> yeah. So 
<laughs> Matthew Broderick, he is Dr. Nick, Dr. Nico Nick Tatopoulos. For some reason, it's a running gag that no one could pronounce his last name, right? Yeah. He's going to Chernobyl because he is doing studies on earthworms and how they've grown in size with the nuclear radiation. Mm-hmm. But almost immediately after he starts, a helicopter arrives and a bunch of military personnel takes all of his stuff. And then this guy speaks to him and says, you're being reassigned. This is another thing. So going back to, I thought Richard Schiff was actually killed when I was a kid. (laughs) When I was a kid in this movie, I remember, because it's like the military goes up to him and is like, Hey, we need you to work on this stuff. You're doing this other thing. We need you here. Remember like saying to my dad, they can't do that, can they? Like when I'm like six years old. And he's like, no, they can. So I grew up with like my number one fear in life was that the military is just going to say, no, you work for the army now or something <laughs> like that. Was like That was like a fear that I had for, for years. I'm <laughs> I love that. You had two fears. That like I, I'm teaching, in, I, I'm teaching in high school. You, you, I'm teaching. I'm teaching high school English. You can't just come in and say no. You're working for the for the nuclear program. Yeah. Also, like, also, we're going to put you in a movie where you get killed in the movie, and then in real life, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he gets reassigned. He is he he does have he has some kind of government position to begin with. He's on the nuclear regulatory committee or something. But yeah, they take him to Tahiti. Tahiti, yeah. And so he meets the people he's working with. His boss immediately flirts with him. By the way, this movie, gender inclusive. We we have two characters dealing with their own Me Too issues. Oh, yeah. That's where they've right. just got their employers are just like sexually harassing them the entire movie. It's just kind of strange. And especially because it's thrown in there as just like dumb, broad comedy. Yes. But yeah, he yeah. meets. Um, I think Elsie is her name. Elsie is the paleontologist who's the head of the operation. And she's like immediately, the second she meets him, she's like takes out her sunglasses and like looks him up and down. And then when they're in the SUV, she's like, oh, you may be the wrong guy for the job, but I think you're (laughs) wildly inappropriate. She's great. (laughs) Yeah. No, Kathy Griffin. Yeah, dude, I thought forever that that was (laughs) Kathy Griffin. I don't know who that actress is. Yeah, I don't know who the actress is. Also in Tahiti, the one Japanese survivor is sitting in like a hospital room, a dark hospital room, when a bunch of French people come up to him and are asking him questions about what it was, and then the, including Jean, is it Reno or Renault? I would assume it's Renault, Jean Renault, because he is French. I yeah, I I, I want to say Reno because I feel like if it were Renault, it would be R E N A U L T. But also, while he is French, I think his family isn't French. He was born in Morocco. And his parents, I think, like, one of them was, like, Italian, maybe? Like, I, I don't think he's his family. Yeah, but what he said, like, uh, my name is Jean Reno. <laughs> Jean Reno. Like, that's a Twin Peaks character, too, by the way. Oh, is it? <laughs> but, yeah, so he's this mysterious French guy. He asks him, okay, what was it? What did you see? And the guy says, Gojira. 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 Yeah. There's kind of a charming scene when Nick first arrives in Tahiti or whatever, where he's like, hey, this, he's talking to the colonel and he's like, hey, this isn't really my field. You know, I, I, I study samples. Like I, I don't do spills, you know, nuclear spills. <laughs> and then he's like, well, here's your sample, study it. And then he's like, what are you talking about? And then they do that yeah, you know, pull out <laughs> shot of the overhead. He's in a giant footprint that feels like a very wannabe Spielberg 
and I actually think it kind of works. It is, and I agree. It totally works. But my favorite part about that scene is they're in the the footprint, and he says, you know, he goes, these uh, earthworms have grown up to 17% larger. Did you know that? And the yeah. like general guy is like, oh, 17%? That's big. And he goes, yeah, it's huge. And he's standing in this giant footprint. <laughs> Yeah, and I do think it's kind of a fun little Spielberg wonder scene. But then they also kind of ruin it in that they don't really cut away from it. And he just like goes running up to him. Colonel, that was a footprint. And it's like, no, 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 no. This is where you cut to a new scene. Yeah. You don't just continue the scene where they discuss that it's a footprint. Like, I thought they kind of botched that, but whatever. So they travel to Jamaica, I believe, is where they where the ship has been beached, right? Yeah, which I don't know why. Because they drive there. Well, because I thought the ship was attacked off the coast of French Polynesia, because that would make you would sense. Think so because it would make sense because Japan's in the Pacific Ocean. They How were close is that ship. to the Panama Canal, Jim? <laughs> yeah, it floated through the Panama. Canal. Right. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I I understand your point. I am not going to agree with it nor argue with it i'll just remind you that this is a film by roland emmerich you're right my apologies yeah let's continue (laughs) i guess maybe they just wanted to do new york but why does godzilla attack the atlantic why doesn't he stay on the the, west coast yeah i know i know it doesn't yeah that's i always thought if i were doing a godzilla movie and they eventually did this in the 2014 godzilla if you're doing an american godzilla movie his first landfall needs to be hawaii right that just makes the most sense. And they, they do that in 2014. He eventually makes his way to San Francisco, I think. But his first, like, American attack is in Hawaii. And I'm like, oh, they did it right. <laughs> nice. Yeah, good. Meanwhile, in Manhattan, we are reminded that The Simpsons is currently the largest television show in the world because we have several Simpsons voice actors in this film for no reason. But we have Audrey is a uh, wannabe reporter or anchor woman who works for Charles Kamen, who was played by... Kent Brockman. (laughs) Harry Shearer. Right, which is... I think we can all agree, Harry Shearer, perfect voice for newscaster. However, do you... When he's so widely associated with the newscaster on The Simpsons, do you want to cast him as a newscaster in an actual movie? I don't know. Yeah, he doesn't have the face for news... Well, I no, that's fine. This is fucking shaming Harry no, Shearer. No, I like. I know, I'm just saying he's ugly. I'm just like he doesn't look like a newscaster. You know what I mean? There's more juvenile humor where he like sits down at the desk and he's insecure because he's shorter than his new co-anchor, who's a woman. So he like has to push himself up uh, as he's <laughs> doing the the live broadcast, which I always enjoyed as a kid. But yeah, so Audrey works for this guy. She gets no respect essentially. And he's hitting on her, and he's like, yeah, we can discuss a promotion. Why don't you come with me uh, to dinner? And she's like, what? You're you're married? And he's like, yeah, and you're really beautiful. It's like, whoa, whoa, buddy. That's a great line. (laughs) Yeah. So, and then she's also got a couple of other friends. She's got uh, the woman that she works with, like, who's got, like, a neighboring cubicle to her. What what was her name? Do you remember? Uh, Samantha? No, I don't know. But she's, of course, married to, that one is, is married to Animal, who is the cameraman, who is played by Hank Azaria. Who does most of the voices in The Simpsons? Hank Azaria does the, does a lot, yeah. Wasn't, I mean, this might be racist, wasn't Gerald Akamura, or whatever his name is in this movie, at the beginning? Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, not that I could see, but one of the guys in the scene, in the Japanese fishing boat going down scene, I saw that guy pop up and like, oh, that's Al Young. The, the the goon in Die Hard who's also in Big Trouble in Little China. Okay, never mind. That's just, what I'm thinking. He's, he's in some Andy Sedaris movies, but I looked all over IMDb and I could not find him. So I don't, I think it's just, they, did they get an Al Leong no, impersonator? I, I think it's him because like, I'm just on Google and it says he's part of the cast. Okay, okay. I did not see him listed, but I, I mean, it did, definitely looked like him. But yeah, not Gerald Akimura, Al Leong. Leong, of course, not a Japanese name, so you're being no more racist than the filmmakers who cast him <laughs> as a Japanese fisherman. <laughs> so Godzilla also takes out a three, uh, f- three more shipping boats. Which is an awesome scene. He leaves a lot of survivors this time. <laughs> well, actually, does he? Because they have this scene where the, the ship comes back up, and it's kind of edited weirdly, but is the ship supposed to fall on them? I don't know. All I can say, though, is that the effect of those ships being pulled underwater looks great. They must have, like, tied them to a track or something and then pushed them underwater. You know what I mean? And then the military slash science team, they they discover these um, ships and they're like, okay, this clearly relates to what we're talking about. For some reason, Elsie is the paleontologist when they're like okay well what are we dealing with she's like oh it's an allosaurus like what where the fuck did that come like, yeah what she specifically names allosaurus it's like what well i tell you <laughs> she wasn't invited to go to fucking isla whatever you know because she's too fucking dumb well yeah it will also like let's talk for a second about the u.s government's decision hey a fishing ship went down and there's these things in it that look like they might be giant claw marks we need a paleontologist leading this expedition like what what kind of conclusion yeah. is that i mean fucking sloths have claws it's be a giant sloth it's matthew broderick that identifies that it's it's actually a new we're looking at the dawn of a new species he does say it has something to do with the nuclear testing i think but yeah godzilla makes his landfall in new york in a scene well first of all I, you kind of hinted at it earlier but we haven't said it during this review of this proper is that every scene in new york it's just pouring rain oh my god yeah it's soaked i i, I bet this movie holds the record for like most amount of water used on set what about open water a <laughs> movie about the two people that are just <laughs> stranded at sea I, I think there's a lot of water in that movie Jim. I, should, but I should i should rephrase i bet this movie no, holds I understand a record what you mean for the most amount of water being sprayed on yeah most most precipitation per minute yeah yeah so everything's pouring rain i've heard people say that this is to hide the bad effects of the godzilla and maybe maybe it is maybe it isn't i don't know but yeah so godzilla's landfall the first people he attacks is this kindly old fisherman yeah. Uh, and, and and I presume he presumably kills that guy and then a couple of bums who are heckling him. Well, he's also, then, first off, he's fishing in the East River. And yeah, he's trying, well, he's trying not swimming to catch, there like I was Kramer. going to say, he's trying not to catch Kramer. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, but that's a great scene where this giant, like, Godzilla tidal wave with, like, spines coming out of the water just shoots toward the dock. It's a cute scene. Am I wrong for saying it doesn't make sense? Because he gets a bite... And, you know, it could be anything. It could be a fish, right? And then they see in the distance these, like, a couple of spikes on the back of Godzilla kind of arise above the water. And the bums are like, oh, hold on, you got a big one. And they apparently don't, they don't realize that that's, like, a mile away or whatever. It's kind of <laughs> silly. But but then 
he continues trying to fight the thing and then it's so strong that it pulls his fishing pole away yeah is did he actually get godzilla to bite down on is that godzilla that's going for his bait i would have like see that that that's the part that doesn't make sense but that's also the part that makes it kind of cute it makes it cute but it also like godzilla bites it like the second he puts it in the water <laughs> those those spikes are moving towards the dock and yet godzilla's mouth is already at the dock I, that doesn't make sense either yeah. in what yeah, position right. is his body contorted where he can be biting this you're but right. also I be agree. a mile away and it just <laughs> listen it's 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 a pointless thing to complain about but yeah even as a kid i was kind of like something's a little confusing about this but yeah <laughs> so godzilla takes out a fulton fish market in manhattan Oh, so uh, really quick, I want to ask you a question. Godzilla, 1998. Mm. Is this New York City at its peak? 1998, I think it was yes. all downhill from then because obviously we get some shots of the World Trade Center in this movie. There's a weird line. I guess it's not as weird as I thought it was, but like in the report, they're like, they're calling this city the worst, or they're calling this the worst disaster in the city since the World Trade Center bombing. Yeah. And... <laughs> And it's yeah. like, yeah, they're not talking about 9-11 because this is before 9-11, but there was in the early 90s, someone bombed the World Trade Center. There, I think they just had like a car and a, or something, but I'm not really sure. But I remember hearing like a few people died in that. And I'm like, but this, like half the city was destroyed. Wouldn't this be way worse? But then I looked up and there were like thousands of injuries or something. It's like, okay, I'll let that line, line slide. But yeah, I think this is New York City more or less at its peak. The New York Knicks were still relevant. The New York Yankees were in the middle of their dynasty. The New York Rangers had just won the Stanley Cup in 1994. The World Trade Center was still, were still standing. And this is like post-Seinfeld, too. Yeah, Seinfeld and Friends are like the biggest shows on television. Which, I mean, there's always shows set in New York City, so maybe that's not a super big deal. But yeah, I think this is basically peak New York City. Roland Emmerich was just lucky that he captured it right at the perfect time. And then exactly. covered it in water. <laughs> Well, it's also, I mean, you say that, but so obviously the city was going to change with after 9-11, but I will say, I don't think what I'm about to say has that much to do with 9-11, but New York for years, decades even, the most iconic skyline in mm-hmm. the world, right? Empire State Building, Chrysler Building, World Trade Center, all of that stuff. Now, if you look at the skyline, it's like hideous and it's like the empire state building the chrysler building are like the only good looking buildings everything else is just like a boring tall thin tower yeah and it's just like it's an ugly skyline now and back in 98 it looked awesome a lot of people don't like the new world trade center building i actually think it's probably better looking building than the original world trade center uh although the seeing the two of them was really the kind of the appeal i've never even seen on the skyline yeah, One World Trade is what it's called. It's like it's kind of generic postmodern skyscraper, but it looks decent. I mean, oh, uh, yeah, looks all right. The original World Trade Centers were kind of boring buildings to look at. They were just super tall, and there were two of them. So, New York has absolutely butchered its skyline in the last uh, 15 years or so. And it's, I, I, I someone needs. <laughs> someone needs to apologize it just looks awful they do yeah stop building fucking flat tall skyscrapers put some flair in there i don't want to sound like one of those assholes who's like in london like oh we can't build any buildings above 10 stories tall like no you need some modern structures obviously but 
at least have them look neat. Like, that's actually one thing that London, I think, has done a neat job of is the modern sky- skyscrapers. They're actually interesting-looking buildings. They like, are. The Gherkin is awesome. The Gherkin's iconic. They are, but I think both built... Like, yeah, I mean... The, the I London think a lot sky- of people hate them because it, it contrasts with St. Paul's and all this wonderful old architecture. Well, and also, I think it was the Gherkin. It's either the Gherkin or the Shard. The windows were positioned in such a way that it was, like, melting people's cars. Yes. No, no, that was the walkie-talkie. That's why they put the black covering over one side of it. Yes, that's true. (laughs) So clearly some design flaws involved still, but... (laughs) Anyways, back to this movie. So Godzilla is roaming around the city. There's uh, The mayor is giving a little speech. Animal, his wife, and Audrey are at a diner. Audrey notices Matthew Broderick on television and comments that she was his college sweetie. I guess in the first scene where we saw Matthew Broderick, he he did have a photo of the two of them together. Yeah, but they haven't seen each other in like 10 years or something. And when, when, what we actually learn about their relationship, I think it kind of makes Matthew Broderick just creepy. Like when she she eventually visits his like tent, his like makeshift laboratory, and he's got photos of her all over the place, and they broke up like ten years ago. Yeah, like that's well, really fucking weird. Yeah, and it does make him creepy because they're like, oh well, why did why did you guys break up? Oh, he didn't want to get married, and she's like, oh, no, that was the problem. He wanted to get married. But yeah, I it's it's I understand it's a movie thing. It's like oh, they're long lost lovers, but like get over it, buddy. It's move on with your life. <laughs> Yeah, play with your fucking worms, dude. So Godzilla eventually makes his way to the street where the diner's on, and, you know, a bunch of cars are knocked over and stuff. An animal being a cameraman runs outside, grabs a camera from the truck, and then goes and heroically slash stupidly gets an extreme close-up of Godzilla as he approaches him and then almost steps on him. He's actually, like, positioned between two of Godzilla's toes almost stepped on but animal uh, apparently i i mean i know this is before cell phones and everything but i do find it hard to believe that he was like the only one to capture this creature on camera but yeah the, so that they air that on the news and animal is hailed as like a hero for hey we we got this exclusive footage of this creature that millions of people saw <laughs> anyone could have filmed I know. Also, is this okay? Have you already spoken about the part where like the monster disappears? Or well, yeah, this is the scene. So, so, so Godzilla. This movie does this thing where you can't have constant Godzilla mayhem. So every now and then you just need Godzilla to just be out of the story, and they explain it where oh he's disappeared, we lost him, and they're like, what? <laughs> How could you do that? And they're like, ah, it just, it just happened. This is this giant thing, and I guess we can't see him. But well, the, the, uh, it's revealed later he burrows. He lives in the subway tunnels. Like, yeah, I get it. Well, but, but it's so um, stupid because there's even like a line where like Matthew Broderick's like, this is an island unlike any other in the world. Yes. And he can hide anywhere. And I'm like, no, he fucking can't, dude. There's millions yeah, yeah, of people this... on this island. What are you talking about? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this, <laughs> fucking this, idiot. This, this movie has a very different idea of what manhattan is as opposed to everybody else Um, (laughs) there's a there's a scene they find that godzilla had been in the tunnels and they're like oh shoot we need to seal off all the tunnels leading to new jersey and brooklyn and whatever and it's like what and he (laughs) and the colonel's like make sure he doesn't leave the island it's like um you sure (laughs) maybe we want this thing not in the most 
populous, densely populated, yeah, densely populated area in, America. in America. Yeah. Send him to Nova Scotia. We're okay with it, you know. Yeah, he can put out the payback Canada for the wildfires. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's also ridiculous because, like, the logic of this movie is Godzilla gets two blocks away, turns down a like a street onto another block, and then and disappears. he's just gone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's classic. It's uh, cartoon <laughs> logic. Yeah, that's exactly Godzilla. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, there's the scene where he um, he dekes the helicopters because they, he turns and they just see this giant hole in a building and they're like, oh, he's in there, and they <laughs> shoot at it, and then. He reacts to them as if they're shooting him because he makes the noises, and I guess they, the noise isn't coming from behind them. But eventually, he comes from behind them and he rips through a building. And it's like, where was he? Though. So. Well, also, I like I like whenever there's helicopters in this movie, they have them like flying behind Godzilla instead of you know like above the city and the skyscrapers. Yes, <laughs> I, in in particular, the second. Or no, maybe it was no. I think it is the first um, helicopter scene because they they essentially do the helicopter scene twice, and it's it's just like they like quadruple the amount of helicopters in the second <laughs> version of it. It's really stupid, but they do this thing where when there's only like one helicopter left, he's like flying away, and he's like, oh, I can't shake him, I can't, and he's like, and, and I'm like, I'm no expert, <laughs> but I think going up might be a good idea. Yeah. Staying at perfect biting height, you know, to quote Jeff Goldblum in the last movie, when they're talking about the high height, he's like, it takes you up into the trees and you're above everything. And then Jeff Goldblum's like, nah, it puts you at perfect biting height. Like, that's exactly what these helicopters are doing. Yeah, Yeah, these helicopters act like they're running away from a train on train tracks. They're like, yeah, (laughs) I can't shake them. These are two dimensional vehicles, helicopters. They only travel in two dimensions. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, so... At this point, New York City's being evacuated. Mayor Ebert doesn't like it, <laughs> but he's being told that he needs to do this. And only, like, some members of the press are allowed to be there. And so Charles came in, Harry Shearer is going there. But Audrey, who's pissed at him, A, for harassing her, and then also B, for turning down her when when she mentions that, hey, I might have a lead because I know someone who's working with the military. And he's like, ah, no, this is where the, the men go to work, honey, or something. Like, <laughs> hey, toots, this is, this is my job. Like, so, so, <laughs> so she steals his press badge yeah. and then uses it to kind of forge her own. She eventually gets into the... Uh, military compound in new jersey i guess where matthew broderick and um all these other folks are matthew broderick proposes the idea of drawing godzilla out with bait and they know he likes fish (laughs) so they create a massive pile of fish right by the Flatiron building in uh i think it's madison park or something madison square park or something now now, by the way sorry to cut you off because i had to Uh go blow my nose did we already talk about that godzilla is pregnant no this is he needs the blood sample first asshole oh i forgot i forgot when i forgot what <laughs> you can't just tell by looking all right you never want to assume by looks like hey godzilla are you, uh, oh congratulations on your pregnancy and godzilla's like, like what, what? <laughs> they have this scene with the bait and then they open up all the all the sewer uh the manhole covers so that he can smell it and then godzilla shows up I've heard people say, oh, this movie, the effects look terrible. They did the rain to make it look a little bit better. I think these were good effects for the time. They don't look great now. Yeah, exactly. But I think they're, like, okay, you know. But it is funny that, like, you know, Jurassic Park looks tenfold better. Well, sure, sure. I mean, that's true. 
And Titanic looks better, but Titanic isn't creating giant creatures, though. You exactly, know. yeah. And I, I like, I think, I think at the time when it came out, and when you were a kid watching it, you thought it looked super real. Godzilla, yeah, running probably. You, right. I think you know, as adults, we realize that it's ridiculous, but it kind of makes the movie cute, you know, and and extra schlocky, I guess. So Godzilla and Matthew Broderick share a moment, I believe is how I describe that in in my notes, where he just kind of looks at him close. Matthew Broderick takes a few pictures with his disposable camera. Remember those? <laughs> yeah. Again, this is the cute, we're going for like the an E.T. moment with this music, and it just doesn't <laughs> quite work. I'm sorry. Also, I guess we haven't said, the Godzilla design, this is not your grandfather's Godzilla. It is more iguana looking. It's less dinosaur, more lizard. Yes. Which I'm fine with that. I like the look. I, I don't like the look, but I also don't want to say that a lot of people who hate this movie are Godzilla fans who are like, this is an abomination, an atrocity against this beloved character. And it's like, it kind of is, but that's not the, it, I don't, I guess we'll get into this later, but when I say this movie isn't very good, I, I don't say it's a bad movie because of it not being a good Godzilla movie. Like, I kind of divorce this from Godzilla. From I look Godzilla. at it as, yeah, it's, it's like, um... The J.J. Abrams Star Trek. I can be like, yeah, eh, those are like bad Star Trek movies, but they're kind of fun. You know, they're all right. It's just not a great representation of what Star Trek is. This is a terrible representation of what Godzilla is. It's just also not a very good movie, though. <laughs> yeah. Also, it's it's funny that we saw Godzilla like 25 minutes into the movie. Yeah, I don't know. They definitely try to do a Jaws thing because his first couple appearances, you don't see him. But he's still, yeah, he shows up certainly in the first half of the movie. Like, it feels like Godzilla should have been, like, you should have only seen glimpses of Godzilla up until, like, the 45-minute mark or something. You know, when he makes, like, a grand appearance somewhere. Should the fish scene be the beauty shot? Well, he does have to destroy, he has to tear things, part of the city down because they need to evacuate the city. But maybe just shoot those scenes differently where you don't see them that well. Yeah, well, even like... even like Where you don't have animal running out in the middle of the street and getting him on full, you know, yeah. for the world to see. Well, even like the city didn't have to be necessarily destroyed that early in the movie. Like, if, if you compare this to the first Godzilla movie, it's not until like, what, like at least halfway through when Tokyo's attacked or whatever? Yeah, probably. And he shows up at night in, in, the, in the bay. Whereas this, he's... Attacking Japanese fishing trawlers and then American fishing trawlers and then showing up uh, in the middle of, like, the busiest city on Earth. Well, he showed up in the busiest city on Earth in 1954 and he's in, like, yeah, the but it took 30th time. busiest city it, on Earth It now. took time to get there. You know, the, no, the, there's know. no, like, real payoff. There's no real buildup. We just get, like, the automatic payoff. The automatic release. Anyways, uh, fish bait tactic. Uh, eventually the military shoots him up and... The bullets travel about 15 miles an hour, unfortunately, in the rockets. <laughs> everything is really slow uh, because he's able to, like, slowly duck out of the way of everything. They blow up the Flatiron building. Later on, they blow up the Chrysler building because he dodges the missiles, the heat seeker missiles, because he's cold-blooded. Although you'd think they would discover that. They probably, because they're like, hey, we're locked on, and then they fire the missiles, and then and they just... I know, right? Or like, you know, it's a fucking lizard. You know, how how come you didn't figure that out? You know. Well, also, but also, could you even lock on in the first place? Then. Yeah, I guess not. <laughs> that, that's You're the right. more confusing yeah. part. But yes, it's a lizard. It's cold blooded. But yeah, so wacky hijinks occur with Godzilla running around, taking out helicopters, stuff like that. And there's a scene where he kind of breathes fire, but also not right. Where he like roars and 
it's so there's so much force in his breath or whatever that like some cars like tip over and stuff and like a fire forms but it's not really him breathing fire it's not the traditional godzilla atomic breath by no exactly yeah watching this movie i feel like roland emmerich has never seen a godzilla movie you know what I mean? He's only hurt. Like, people have explained it to him. Yeah, I mean, and that's possible. <laughs> yeah. I and, and I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he is a huge Godzilla fan, mm-hmm. but he was not trying to make a Godzilla movie. He was trying to make Jurassic Park, i.e. That's exactly we it, get yeah. Velociraptors. I mean, I mean, really, at the end of the day, he might be the biggest Godzilla fan in the world, but for some reason, he. I mean, not for some reason. Like, Jurassic Park was the biggest movie ever. I get it. Yeah, but it's funny that he was trying to make a shitty Jurassic Park. He was, he was doing the... Well, those... because he is a shitty director. <laughs> like, <laughs> at the end of the day. <laughs> he's not going to make a better Jurassic Park. He might try to in his own mind, but no, he's but not I mean, going like, to pull it it's off. Like, dude, it's like he watched... It's like Jurassic watched Park was made by arguably the greatest film director who's ever lived in Steven no, but, Spielberg. But, but it's like he watched The Lost World. He watched the end of it. He goes, oh, fuck, dude. This was awesome. Like, I like all the stuff on the island, but the San Diego stuff was fucking awesome. I'm going to make a movie just like that. But that's like the yeah. part that everybody finds boring and stupid. I will say this is better than Jurassic Park 3 for, for whatever, you know, I keep shitting on Jurassic Park 3. But Again, I'm going to have to rewatch it, so I'll, I'll have to take your word for it. Okay, so the Chrysler building is taken down. Flatiron building is taken down. These are my two favorite New York buildings, by the way. Just throwing that <laughs> out there. So Nick collects blood because when they shot him, they hit him a few times and there's some blood on the ground. So he collects some blood samples. And then why does he get pregnancy tests? Does he have a reason to believe that he's no, pregnant he, or uh, he was trying to detect something in the blood of okay Godzilla? he was just doing something else and then discovered that they were pregnant but he was using pregnancy tests yeah because pregnancy tests can detect a certain kind of thing in blood that has nothing to do with being pregnant right okay so and i'm going to assume i'm going to give the movie the benefit of the doubt that uh pregnancy tests d- designed for humans could work for other species <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but I'll yeah. just give it the benefit of the doubt. So it's when he's buying a shit ton of pregnancy tests that Audrey finally meets him. And then he invites her back to his uh, his makeshift laboratory, which is just a tent. And that's when he discovers <laughs> that Godzilla's pregnant. And for some reason, you'd think that that means they would start saying, oh, I guess it's not a he, it's she. But no, they still go on with the he, but that he just reproduces asexually. Yeah, just... I know. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay. I don't know why the first assumption is asexual reproduction. The, the, wouldn't the first assumption be, oh, there probably is another one out there? Which is what the governor says, but, like, it's not the scientist immediately goes to, oh, yeah, it's just, I don't know. Oh, yeah, no, it's just a giant lizard that produces offspring kind of like frogs. <laughs> maybe it's mixed with frog DNA. Yeah, yeah, maybe the iguana got merged with something else. I don't know. <laughs> So so he and Audrey are, they're catching up. Audrey claims she's a reporter, obviously. And he's like, wow, you're doing great for yourself. That's awesome. And then when he goes to take the pregnancy test to his superiors, she sees a VHS tape marked Top Secret and takes it because she's a huge fan of the Zucker Brothers. <laughs> and when she actually watches it, she's disappointed that it's not a Val Kilmer movie, but it is the footage shot by the french people interviewing the japanese guy where he says gojira gojira so so she actually takes the tape and 
we have this big like boardroom scene with the military and everything and this is where nick is saying actually you know there's a nest out there somewhere you know all those fish that that we found in the sewers those aren't for him eating he's trying to feed his kids Mm -hmm. you know who knows how many eggs there are we need to find this this needs to be as high a priority as killing this adult creature is they're they're also watching the news the, the news comes up and Audrey is with Animal at like a local bar in like Long Island or New Jersey, wherever they live. She's all excited to see her new story break because she had filmed it and just given it to the people at her station. But instead they run the story with Kent Brockman. And so she gets pissed off and she's like, she's like, what? They stole my story. And there's something about her reaction in the bar where it doesn't feel like... She feels she comes off more like as a, like a child who's just kind of like irritated about something than she yeah. does about someone who's genuinely been fucked over by her boss. She's just like, I don't believe this. Yeah, it's, it's like, like it, 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 it's almost like she was like, hmm, I don't know how to act. Like my and it's Gojira, you moron, because this yeah. is of course Kent Brockman names it Godzilla. Godzilla. Yeah, <laughs> the military sees this. I think they pronounce his name wrong again, Dr. Nico. Or no, maybe this is the first time they actually get his name right. But immediately when they say this, everyone just like looks at him. Like all these generals and colonels, governor, Siskel and Ebert, they're just like staring at Matthew Broderick. (laughs) This was really funny to me because in general, Matthew Broderick, he's he's certainly not an action hero, but like he's, he's got a comedy face and he'll always be Ferris Bueller. But there's just like when they're looking at him and he just like kind of like looks around from like one direction to the other. It is it, just like something is a very funny. Yeah. There's just like funny ex- facial expressions like this isn't supposed to be a funny scene, but it, I'm kind of laughing. And he kind of has that voice where he's like, what? What? Well, yeah. And then no, no, the acting is, is not good in this scene. And they're like, what do you went to the press with this? And he's like, no, no, no. <laughs> and they're like, they mention you by name. He's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then he realizes, he's like, yeah. oh my god, she took it. Yeah, it's not a well-acted scene by any means. But So he gets, he gets fired from his military science operation. He does say to the paleontologist, he's like, you know, whatever, you guys go ahead and fire me, but you need to make sure that the military finds this nest. And as he's getting in a cab... Oh, first of all, I should probably mention that the mysterious French man who goes by the name Philippe Roche has planted a bug on the mayor. Mm-hmm. And I guess the mayor has just worn the same suit every day. Yeah, for like four days. <laughs> yeah, days. or and, and no one's noticed that this thing that's clearly visible is on his suit. I don't know. As as um, Matthew Broder is getting in a taxi, Audrey sees him and she doesn't really apologize to him. She's more like, "Why are you leaving?" And she's like, "Oh, is it because of me?" And he's like, "Yeah, what did you?" And think? he's like, "He's she's, like, yeah, you fucking bitch, you tricked." Yeah, me. <laughs> she. I don't. I don't think she quite apologizes to him here, but she does admit that she's not a reporter. So he gets in the taxi, and then Animal he follows them. Because and and he says later he wanted to talk some sense into this guy, and and really like. She's the one completely in the wrong here, and you just have to have somebody who doesn't even know the situation who's just like going to get involved. Like, is he going to go beat up this guy? <laughs> I don't know what he's doing, but he's a, he's a pretty loyal friend, I guess. But yeah, so the the taxi heads to a warehouse, and it turns out it is driven by the mysterious Frenchman Philippe Roche, who uh, reveals his intentions to Nick Nico Tatopoulos. 
And he says, like, I am with the French Secret Service. We know that your military friends will not be looking for the nest, but we know it's out there and we are going to go after it. Do you want to help us? And he decides to join them. Up to this point, too, it's kind of confusing because you're like, okay, like you're French Secret Service. Why are you here? This is the scene where that makes a little bit of sense, though, because he's like, because he asks him, like, well, why aren't you working with the American government or military? And he's just like, let's just say, you know, I'm a, I'm a patriot. I love my country. There are certain things that my country has done that I don't want to get out there. And then Matthew Rogers like, oh, the nuclear testing and French Polynesia. And he's just like, yeah. And he's like, oh, I thought we were keeping this a little secret, but OK. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, so so they've got all this military grade weaponry. And they're all getting ready to go look for the nest. Animal is spying on them. And then he goes to Audrey, who's crying in whatever bedroom she's using, which is in Animal's and his wife's house. I actually like the little, like, they've just got, like, 40 people in their household because it's just, at this point, it's just a refugee camp, basically. I kind of like that. That's that's neat. It's kind of cute. You know, it's like, well, how was I supposed to tell people they couldn't come in? (laughs) Yeah. You know? And, and Animal's wife is also blaming Animal for what happened because because earlier at the diner they had this they were telling her that you know nice guys finish last like you you're you're not going to advance in your career unless you take some initiative and you become a bit of an asshole so that's kind of why she stole the VHS tape it's not just that she likes Val Kilmer and and for some reason the wife is just like yeah this was all you <laughs> she she doesn't accept that she had something to do with this too but yeah exactly yeah. Well, that's how women are, you know. <laughs> I, I like a little bit. Uh, I I do like that this movie. When we meet these two characters, the the wife who again his name I can't remember, and animal, it really looks like they're both going to be important characters. The wife is basically just weaned off, and it's all animal after a certain point. And and animal's the far more enjoyable one. Hank Azaria is likable in this yes. movie. Yeah, he's a little too little too new york attitude at times but she's worse the wife's worse well you know who she reminds me of it's that fucking witch in those crappy professor mcgonagall no no no, she's cool no it's that it's that like witch from new york in those crappy um Ah, oh, those crappy Harry Potter reboot movies. What are they called? Fantastic oh, Beasts. Oh, those, yeah, the one. Fantastic Breasts and Where to Find Them. Yeah, exactly. I've never really yeah. seen those. She, she reminds me of that character, and I'm like, oh, just shut up already. God. So, Animal convinces Audrey to join him as they go to meet the French people and Matthew Broderick as they look for the nest. And he's like, listen, if they find the nest... Don't you want to be the one that can be there to show we can document it and we can show the world that this guy was actually right? So in order to win back the love of her life, she has to do something that's completely serving him and only him, I guess. Well, I guess she she did. Yeah. She did screw everything up. I'm okay with that. (laughs) Madison Square Garden is where they end up heading. There are hundreds of eggs, and the eggs are all like seven eight feet tall they're taller than humans and they start hatching almost immediately and the 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 french don't even have they don't have enough bombs and they don't have enough time to set up all the bombs so when these animals are born when they get out of their eggs they can immediately walk and they immediately want to eat and once (laughs) they run out of the fish which they run out pretty quickly godzilla did not collect nearly enough fish for how many kids he had 
Yeah, yeah. Because they're immediately ready to eat grown-ass humans. Yeah, and they're big, too. Like, uh, they're like... They say they're nine feet tall. I think they're, that's a line later. I don't think they're quite that tall, but whatever. But they're huge, and they look so stupid. They look like a cross between what Godzilla looks like and a Velociraptor. They've got like this big chunky head that's like flopping around. It's it, yeah, it's Godzilla, but Godzilla in this movie has kind of an iguana face, where it's kind of like <laughs> yeah, rectangular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this, then these Velociraptors do not have a rectangular face. They have dinosaur face. But they're kind of ugly and <laughs> stupid looking on top of that. Kind of ugly. So, so meanwhile, while all this all this havoc is being wreaked at Madison Square Garden, they do the military does yet another bait trap for Godzilla with even more tanks and more helicopters. But basically, the same exact thing happens, and they eventually chase Godzilla into the water. But then he's attacked by a couple of submarines. This is dumb too because. They fire their torpedoes at Godzilla, and you can see that he's, like, trying to dig into the ground underwater. And then after the torpedoes hit him, it cuts to, like, a monitor in a submarine, and it says, Target destroyed. And the guy goes, Target destroyed, sir. And then we cut back to Godzilla, and you see his whole fully intact body sinking. And I'm like, how does that... <laughs> Do we, yes, are, are you complaining about the use of the word destroyed in this instance? Yeah, and also, and also, like, the crosshairs disappear. It's not like a, it's not like a plane that gets blown out of the air. Yeah, was, was the missile creature. hooked up to a heart monitor or something? <laughs> that's exactly yeah, that's it, a fair yeah. point. <laughs> so, yeah, so they think they... They think Godzilla's dead. Obviously, he's not. But we don't see adult Godzilla for a while because it is now... This is the Velociraptor portion of the film... All the French NPCs get killed off, and it's just Jean Reno and Broderick, and then Audrey and Animal are kind of away from them, but they eventually meet up. There's a little fun scene when Matthew Broderick gets on the elevator, and then he has to, like, shove a Godzilla away from him as he's closing the elevator door, and then he goes up to a floor, and then it opens up, and it's just a bunch of Godzillas, like, eating popcorn, and then he's like, oh, on the floor. Like, that's a little fun. (laughs) Yeah. I also like the scene when uh, Philippe and all the French guys are like pretending to be Americans. Oh, uh, yeah, I forgot that. That's like my favorite scene in the movie. I, I don't know how I forgot that. I, even as a kid, I loved that. Yeah, because they have to clear a military checkpoint. And Broderick is just like, hey, let me do all the talking. But then when he answers, the guy's like, I didn't ask you. I asked the driver. Who are you boys with? Uh, we're with the 3-2, sir. I didn't ask you, soldier. Oh, well, Sergeant O'Neill just called down for us he wants us to join him right now sir thank you you got a problem talking well no sir i'm fine all right keep it moving i'll thank you very much elvis presley movies it was the king that's a very fun, incredibly stupid yeah. way to like get out of a <laughs> sticky situation. Like, I, it's for like a kind of a schlock movie. It really works, uh, but yeah, that was great. Uh, and he's right; he he was the king. <laughs> Everyone at the Ma- at Madison Square Garden, they're trying to get to the outside or get a hold of the military and tell them to bomb Madison Square Garden, but they can't get through to anyone until Audrey has the idea of if they sneak up into the booth, they can film and send the feed over to the station because they cover the Rangers games. 
and and I guess they they realize that they if they do this if they get this over to the station the military will also see this because if they air it live the military is watching the news constantly for some reason. <laughs> um, so Audrey gets her moment to shine in the live television broadcast. She interviews Matthew Broderick and she's like, "Well, I guess your theory about the eggs was right all along." And I'm thinking like, what a fucking terrible time to do an I told you so. <laughs> like they're asking the military, "Hey, can you bomb this place?" And she's she's like, "Well, yeah, but first we have to take the time to say, "Hey, you're right about this thing." I know. But yeah, like, we I get don't it. Give a fuck, just bomb it. Let's go. Yeah, Come on. exactly. So, so they're going to go bomb it, and but they've only got a few minutes to escape. They get to the main concourse area or whatever, the main lobby, and there's nothing. But there's Godzilla's everywhere. <laughs> they've only got like thirty seconds, and there's Godzilla's everywhere. <laughs> Jean Reno decides to shoot chandeliers to give them some space it's a very cheesy way to to be able to escape but they get out of there they barricade the door and they're just able to run away from the thing when it blows up and then immediately adult godzilla shows up he finds one dead baby and then he gets very angry and he chases after them they eventually get in a taxi cab they hotwire the cab and then as they pass by the military this is actually kind of a clever thing because they want to be able to communicate with them so matthew broderick throws like the taxi identification or whatever to the military so that they can get him on the radio like that's actually kind of clever but i'll tell you what isn't clever when they get trapped in the tunnel with godzilla staring them down got nowhere to go what do they do jim um good question let me look at my notes why don't you tell oh, for me fuck's sake. They, they use they use the high beams oh that's on right the cab it's very silly right. it's very dumb and specifically the way it's phrased too he's like does this car have high beams and then jean reno immediately knows what that means but also like as a kid that made me think do some cars not have high beams no all cars have high beams yeah to my knowledge i i <laughs> You probably well, don't yeah, use them a lot in, the in New 40s, York City. But, but, you know, like... <laughs> yeah. And then also, I want to say another thing. If Matthew Broderick had asked that question in 1986 <laughs> or 7, there would be two more living people in Northern Ireland if he had yeah. used his high beams yeah. back then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, they escape, and then they're trying to get Godzilla to a suspension bridge, which in this case is going to be Brooklyn Bridge. I guess they, it turns out to be right, but yeah, they, I guess they're just hoping that he gets tangled up in the cables, which is exactly what happens, but not until after Godzilla scoops him up with his mouth. They're on like a big piece of road too, so he can't like immediately swallow them. And then in something that's almost as dumb as the gymnastics thing in the Lost World, <laughs> um, they take a electrical cable and zap. Godzilla yeah, like just mouth. below the gum line. Yeah. <laughs> and luckily he like spits him out, but even more luckily is that he is able to get lower closer to the ground before he spits them out cuz otherwise it's just a <laughs> 250 foot drop to their death. So they're driving, they they do like a jump and they get off the bridge and Godzilla is caught in the suspension and then Planes come in and bomb him, and he dies, he falls. They have this another kind of moment with him and Matthew Broderick looking into his eye as the eye kind of goes out. And then celebration ensues. The French guy disappears, and Animal, who's like thrilled that, oh, we got all this awesome footage, realizes that the tape has been taken. And then Matthew Broderick gets a phone call from 
Roche, and he's just like, I've got the tape. I've just got to remove a few things. Then then your friend will get it back. <laughs> and then that's the end. But wait, it's not the end because we've got one more egg in Madison Square Garden. In to me, one of the funniest like sequel bait cliffhangers that never amounted to anything. Although, I, if I'm not mistaken, I have heard this, and you know me, I don't watch animated crap. <laughs> but I think I had heard that the Godzilla, the movie, the animated series, I believe yeah. follows the whatever came out of that egg. Oh, I believe. see. Yeah, I don't know. So, see, I, I, I thought there was a sequel to this movie, wasn't there? No, thank oh. God. Um, so, Jim, what did you think of Godzilla 1998? It's as dumb as I remembered. The one thing I will say about it, like, because it's, it's a fine movie. It looks fine. Obviously, it's silly and schlocky, but it's a Roland Emmerich movie. So you got to just kind of get past that fact, you know? Yeah. I will say, though, it felt longer than I remembered watching it. It's a little over two hours, two hours ten or some. Yeah, whereas, like, I think Jurassic Park was, like, two hours. Or like two yeah, hours this was minutes. a few minutes longer, I think. Yeah, but Jurassic Park felt shorter to me than Godzilla did. Well, it is. I just yeah by two minutes long, yeah 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 long, long. I know but I mean I meant like a lot shorter. You say that, but no, see I I disagree because <laughs> the Lost World has its climax, and then it, it continues has... on for another half hour. That <laughs> makes the movie feel longer than it is actually. Yeah, that's true. The Lost right. World feels like a two and a half hour movie, even though it's not. That's true. But you know though, like as as silly as this movie is, like it's an enjoyable movie. Like if this movie was going to yeah. play at a theater, I'd go see it. <laughs> oh yeah tell me about it yeah well you know i mean yeah this is an incredibly dumb movie i don't I, hate I, it i like this more I, than independence day oh i see i don't but i okay so a few things one and i, I know i said this earlier but i just want to reiterate i am not going to be that guy that complains about this because it's not a good godzilla movie i'm i'm, I'm looking at it as just like a movie like it's, it's, it's so i don't want to be like like Jurassic Park 3, again, I'm bringing it up again. <laughs> Part of the reason why I hate that movie as much as I do is it's a sequel to Jurassic Park, one of my favorite films of all time. If that were just a standalone movie, I would think it's terrible, but I wouldn't like utterly hate it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's why I hate the Pirates of the Caribbean sequels, because that first movie's so good and then they just shat all over it. <laughs> but yeah, so so Godzilla is dumb. <laughs> I mean that's not that's a non-controversial statement but I think the most frustrating thing about uh, it is that almost every character is completely wrong and I don't necessarily mean the casting I mean the casting's part of it because Broderick is just miscast but all of the main characters are like comic relief side characters it's really weird yeah everyone is like that wacky side character Animal is the only one that really kind of works in that role for me, where I actually do think he's like a, a good comedic side character. But it's also weird because he's acting along people who are almost equally goofy. Yeah, well, then it's also weird that you're introduced to a bunch of characters who are seemingly competent at their jobs and they know what they're talking about other than Kathy Griffin look alike, but like even then she's still seemingly and Audrey good at her is job. utterly incompetent, I guess. So I mean, yeah, she's a Me Too victim, so maybe you can't hold <laughs> it against her. But but like none of those characters do anything, and like no like actual quote unquote scientific stuff happens in the movie, other than Matthew well, Broderick sure. finding out that it's pregnant. Yeah, 
they're not trying to destroy this thing or, or, or figure out how to stop it with science. They're like, okay, let's keep on bringing bigger guns. Okay, let's keep on trying to trap it somewhere. That's that's true. Shoot. It is incredibly dumb that, oh, this plan didn't work. And then the next time, I mean, it's not as big a deal because at least at that point, Matthew Broderick isn't part of the military operation. But when we cut back to the military going after Godzilla again, and they literally just do the same plan again, it's shockingly dumb. From the standpoint or viewpoint of like an animal looking to lay eggs somewhere, why would you go to like the busiest fucking place on the planet? How come you weren't sticking around a French Polynesia and laying some eggs there? You know. Okay, listen, I've never given birth, but <laughs> I am going to, for the purposes of my response to that, I'm going to compare it to oh. <laughs> going to the bathroom. Maybe he's on his journey. Maybe he's on his way to Greenland, and suddenly he just needed to go. Yeah, can't hold you know, it anymore. To quote Jeff Goldblum from the first Jurassic Park, when you gotta go, you gotta go. <laughs> Maybe he, like, fully intended to, like, get to the middle of nowhere, but then, ah, shit. I don't know. That, to me, isn't a, isn't a problem. I, I do think it's, it's... As for what I like about the movie, some of the raptor stuff I kind of like. Some of that is fun. I love Jean Reno. Yeah, he's he's my favorite part of the movie. Oh, absolutely. He's a very fun character. And like I said about Roland with The Lost World, deserving of a far better movie than he's in. This guy could be like a French James. You could just have like a James Bond type movie with this guy and, mm-hmm. and I would watch it. Uh, assuming we have a different director and different writers. <laughs> of the like adult Godzilla scenes, I'm trying to think of like what I actually thought was kind of neat and... I don't think any of the adult Godzilla stuff is that is that great. I, I guess I like I like the, the you know the ships going down when you don't really see them. That's always good. The lead up to actually seeing Godzilla is pretty good. Yeah, I think that's better than when we actually see him. This movie doesn't have much of a legacy, does it? It's not really a well remembered. It's not one that people go back to. You won't find no. it on TV all the time. Like Independence Day, you'll find on TV all the time. So what is this movie's legacy? For a lot of people, a lot of Godzilla fans, it, this is the movie that proved that America couldn't make a Godzilla movie. <laughs> Which some people say is, is is still going. I think we've gotten a couple decent ones. Nothing great. This is also one of the legacies of this film. Is one of the weirdest musical mashups in history. Come With Me by Puff Daddy... And Jimmy Page, it is heard briefly in the scene when Audrey is trying to counterfeit the ID badge. Mm-hmm. And then it's, the it's of course, the credits song. It is the music of, I mean, it's, it's re-recorded, but it's the music of Cashmere by Led Zeppelin mm-hmm. with Puff Daddy, a.k.a. P. Diddy, a.k.a. Diddy, a.k.a. Sean Combs, a.k.a. Sean Puffy Combs, whatever the fuck he wants to go by at this moment, rapping over it. I kind of love the song. I do. This, first of all, I had this soundtrack as a kid. I should probably say that. But yeah, I always like this song. I also have like fond memories of it because I remember, and this, I didn't see this in person because... The first Yankees game I went to in person, because I'm not from New York, I did eventually live there, but the the first Yankees game I went to was when I was on vacation, was in 2003. I'm sure Jeter had moved on at that point, but I do remember from watching TV hearing that this song was definitely his walk-up song for a year or two. Oh. (laughs) And again, going back to, is this the peak of New York City? 
Derek Jeter, the New York Yankees. Puff Daddy was still he wasn't he was still a musician. He wasn't just like businessman yeah, yeah, yeah. mogul yeah. guy. Like he was still like a relevant musician. Just throwing that out there. I mean, you know, uh, another thing, maybe we could put New York City peak a year or two earlier because then we would still have the notorious B.I.G. He was dead at this time. Oh, but. it's funny because, again, I agree with you. But to, to kind of cut you off and switch some tracks here, this might have been peak New York. But nobody thought that this was peak cinema in America. Oh, shit, no, no. And in in the States, it only grossed, uh, I think I'm reading it now, it says it only made $136 million in total over eight weeks. Internationally, the film took an additional uh, $242.7 million for a combined worldwide total of $379 million. It's, It's funny, I do remember when I saw this as a kid, this was an age where, you know, I was, what, five years old when this comes out. Every movie I saw back then I liked. I hadn't yet developed critical thinking, and I I wasn't like, hey, this movie wasn't very good. What what is this? But I remember when I saw this, I was first of all, I was like so excited to see a Godzilla movie because I liked Godzilla. I loved that we were going to see one that didn't have the weird, the mouths not matching what people were saying. (laughs) I remember teaser trailers. I remember there was this teaser trailer with uh, like, people going on a museum tour of the Museum of Natural History, they get to like a T-Rex skeleton. They're like, yeah, this is one of the biggest predators that ever lived. Boom, a giant Godzilla foot comes down and crushes it. And it's like, that's awesome. I remember (laughs) a lot of advertising for this. I remember Taco Bell Godzilla commercials. In my universe, this movie was the biggest movie ever. Then I also remember noticing... That my parents said that, oh, you know Godzilla that you saw last week at the movie theater? It's already gone. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, <laughs> this this movie was like, I, this was like almost like a harsh realization for me that, you know, this my world, the world that I live in isn't necessarily the world that other people live in where maybe people just don't give a shit about Godzilla. And that was like a bit of a wake-up call, I guess you could say, but I don't know. It is weird, but I guess there just wasn't really much of a market for giant lizard disaster movie unless it was something like jurassic park this movie seemed to be a little too over the top it had just too dumb exactly it was too stupid and people weren't falling for it right but i remember like when i was a kid this was the godzilla that i knew and, and and grew up with and it wasn't until i was like maybe 12 or 13 i was like oh yeah i knew that godzilla existed as like a japanese film series but i'd never seen them i'd, I'd never even mm-hmm. sought them out for me this was godzilla i don't know yeah it's, it's weird watching it again and just being like wow when i was a kid i must have been fucking stupid you know because i really liked this movie when i was a kid yeah well and, and i will say like the the again the design of the godzilla they changed it i think they changed it for the worse i do at least appreciate that they kept the roar because that's as iconic as anything. And, and mm-hmm. you know, watching a Godzilla movie where he doesn't have that roar would just be wrong. I will say, and this is this probably should have been brought up in the Lost World discussion, but Jurassic Park seems to me, you know, I talked about how Spielberg's post-Jurassic Park, or really his post-Schindler's List blockbusters just don't have the same feel. I would almost say blockbusters just don't have the same feel after Jurassic Park. Now, I'm not saying that Jurassic Park is like a, a work of art or like the most intelligent movie ever, mm-hmm. but there's like some thoughtfulness put into it. And then it's like, we get to Independence Day is just dumb. Godzilla is just dumb. The Transformers are just dumb. 
It's like every every movie after this is it's, just it's, like it's loud. Stupid. There's big yeah. explosions and action scenes. Yeah, you know. And you're right with something like Jurassic Park, a lot of thought, effort, and care to making a good story and a good movie went into it. You know, again, like comparing Jurassic Park, even the second one, directly to Godzilla, it's night and day difference. Two <laughs> two giant lizard monster movies. Yeah, one is a movie about. The ethics of of creating. Life. Oh, you you mean Jurassic Park? I think you said Godzilla. No, comparing Jurassic Park even to the second one. Yeah, I, I agree yeah. with you. Yeah, it's it, it's just it, I don't know. It's just really interesting. Well, again, it's... again, going back to the first one is a science fiction movie. The second one's a monster movie. The yes, exactly. Monster movie. Exactly. So this this is going to segue into our possibly brief discussion. Jim, which of these two movies do you prefer? Uh, the Lost World for sure. How about you? Yeah, I do too. It's not a perfect movie, but I can at least see a lot of things in it that are done really well, and I just don't think Godzilla has that other than the Philippe Roche character really is the, is the not the lone bright spot, but the, the one part that really stands out. And The Lost yeah. World has a few of those things because it has an awesome character, and it has several really good sequences, and the effects and are better. it's genuinely funny sometimes as well. A little bit too much, like, sarcastic responses to things mm-hmm. i it, i understand it's in ian malcolm's character but there's just a little bit too much of like where, where he takes the line down from the high hide and you can hear he like hits the ground hard and and then it's like richard shift's like oh i would have squeezed a little <laughs> or something like yeah. a few too many moments like that the vince vaughn i feel like has a lot of those kind of yeah, well, even he, even there's like a line when when richard schiff throws in the rope he goes can i get you anything and uh, yeah, oh, that's yeah, the worst like, one. Yeah, could, could I get a Big Mac and fries or whatever? That, or a quarter pounder and fries and a milkshake. Those are the last words spoken to Richard Schiff, aren't they? Yeah, I think so. They, the last thing he heard people say to him was they're making fun of him as he's trying to save their life. <laughs> just, yeah, I know. And yeah. it's like, oh, fuck off, dude. <laughs> yeah. And then Godzilla has a lot of that, but that's just because every character is a wacky, goofy character but yeah so how do you think this stacks up as a drive-in double feature i think it works really well don't get me wrong about my dislike for godzilla but i think it works really well especially in the way that we have it set up where you get jurassic park first godzilla second you have more serious you have godzilla at the end of the first one and then you have godzilla from the beginning of the next one basically yeah exactly yeah pretty, yeah like that is perfect but also you get like real movie where People are the monsters as well as these dinosaurs. And then you have ridiculous over-the-top monster movie. I understand what you mean, but Godzilla, the people are also the monsters in Godzilla. Matthew Broderick has blood on his hands. <laughs> Listen, I wasn't going to bring that up again, but yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it, it, it does work well, and I don't even want to say it works surprisingly well, because what you do have at the end of the day is two movies that are... That revolve around giant man-eating yeah. lizards. Yeah, so. and I think as a double feature, too, I think you do see that. Quite frankly, you see a drop-off from the first Jurassic Park to the second one. I, mean, I understand we yeah. didn't watch the first one for this, but you see, oh, movies are getting dumber. Big blockbuster movies are getting dumber, but you still see all these things in the Lost World that are like, yeah, this is made by a good filmmaker. This is made by Steven Spielberg. And then the second movie... You have someone imitating Spielberg, trying mm-hmm. to use a similar score at times that never really feels like it's hitting the right emotions, and then trying to do these shots of wonder. They actually did something in, you know, you have the famous dolly zoom shot, which 
I'll always think of Jaws because Jaws is a movie that I watched a bunch as a kid. But that's that scene when Sheriff Brody realizes that the kid's being eaten in the water. They do that shot where they zoom in on the camera while dollying the camera away from him. So there's the weird effect of it looks like he's coming to and also going away from the camera. It's done perfectly in Jaws. They do it a lot in Vertigo. Vertigo, I think, is maybe where that's invented. So I've seen that referred to as the Vertigo shot. Roland Emmerich does it in Godzilla, and I think he does it in... I don't think I had it in my notes, but I know he does it at the wrong time. Whenever he whenever he does it, I did notice this. They had a shot where I'm like, oh, they're going to do a, a Vertigo shot, and they didn't. And I'm like, oh, that was weird. I would have thought it would have been a good time for that. And then there was like another moment where I thought the same thing. And then they do it like a half hour later, and it's like, oh, that yeah, this <laughs> fucking should have. He did it wrong. He screwed it up. Yeah, yeah. well, and, and that's the thing too. I mean, it, it's it really is like comparing even Jurassic Park two. It is like comparing a finer cut of steak to a fucking hamburger that somebody's mushed together and put in a pan. Yeah, you got for some you. You need some ketchup on on uh, Godzilla. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it, and again, like I think tonally, when the Lost World shifts to that goofier style by the end, when you have the T Rex running around San Diego, that is mm-hmm. the perfect lead in to Godzilla. Because that's exactly what Godzilla is on a small scale, right? Right. And while while the Lost World may not be the nicest cut of steak you could get, it the is still roast. better and a little more palatable than than Godzilla. It's it's a it's a not great cut of meat, but it's cooked the right way. It's cooked perfectly. Spielberg had it in for the right amount of time. It's cooked evenly. There's just yes. there's there's that yeah. pink in the middle. It's not yeah. Whereas but God- then Godzilla God- is just burnt, burnt on to a one crisp. end. And, yeah. like, oh, and it's raw yeah. on the other but but he i cooked would, it in the microwave yeah <laughs> yeah but at the end of the day if somebody brought me that steak and they had cooked it i would i wouldn't say no you know what i mean i would say sure but let me put a lot of sauce on this yeah let me put a lot of hot <laughs> sauce, sauce or something up. pepper salt sauce i mean that yeah fuck i haven't even thought about that for years that's an yeah. inside joke folks i know it's pronounced peppercorn i know but it's <laughs> we don't have to explain sauce. that yeah, well, you know what, and and that the pepper salt sauce in Godzilla is uh, Jean Reno. Yeah, he he spices it up. He makes it a little more interesting, a little more palatable. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point. A good analogy. I like that. We got there together, Patrick. Sure. <laughs> so next episode, we are approaching the end of our season, and that means we are doing a mo- uh, an episode where Jim and I each pick a movie to cover last year or last season we did this and i chose the street fighter jim chose big trouble in world china i did i will let jim say his pick first because this will be the first of the two movies we cover so jim what do you have picked out for us battles without honor or humanity from 1973 and i don't know much about it all i know is it's a story about the yakuza right in like hiroshima after the second world war I had seen it before. I do own the Blu-ray, and I have not. I was glad you picked this because I have not watched it since I purchased the Blu-ray. So this has a reason for me to watch it. But yeah, I know that's a big series of films. It's like an anthology series where it's you know it's they're not like true sequels, but they're all maybe thematically they're all Yakuza movies to my knowledge. And they eventually they brought the series back like in the '90s or the 2000s, and that's where you get that famous boom 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 the music oh. that's in Kill Bill. That's oh. that comes from like new battles without honor and humanity or something like that so jim my pick 
is a movie that you probably haven't heard of, but this is somewhat of a notorious B-movie that I know not much about. I just know a little bit about where it came from, but my film is Gone with the Pope. (laughs) This is a film that was shot in the 70s by um, Duke Mitchell, who is... uh, I guess he became an independent filmmaker of, of some sort, but he was he got a start as part of a comedy duo that was basically ripping off Lewis Martin and Lewis. Okay. <laughs> yeah, at some point he made an independent crime film in the 70s that was never released until Grindhouse releasing got around to it in 2010. They might have edited the movie. I'm not really sure. Oh but yeah, my that, that, God. 2010 is the movie's first release. So it's a bit of a New York Ninja situation, except the film, I think, was completed, whereas New York Ninja, they didn't have sound or anything. So I don't know. I am looking forward to it. I really don't know what to expect. <laughs> On with the Pope. I, I'm just expecting weird. I love the yeah. 70s. I think we're going to see a really weird fucking 70s movie that came out 13 years ago. So. <laughs> That's exciting. I can't wait, actually. Also, as of now, anyways, both films are on Tubi, although Jim and I discovered that Battles Without Honor and Humanity is listed on Tubi under New Battles Without Honor and Humanity, but I watched the first couple minutes of it, and it does seem to be the one we're thinking it is, so I think it's just mislabeled on Tubi, but that there is a New Battles Without Honor and Humanity title. Most of the movies in the series had, like, subtitles. There's, like, a Hiroshima Deathmatch and stuff, and... Yeah, this we think this is the right movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's if it's not, we're watching it. Whatever and, it is, yeah, you know. But that was also like I think the first three or four came out in like '73, because I remember the Street Fighter movies all came out the same year. So I think oh, that's just how Japan worked. They worked quickly, <laughs> and without honor or humanity. <laughs> right. <good point. laughs> all right. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We will catch you next time. <laughs>